Ladies and gentlemen, the bloodiest thing that ever happened in front of a camera. Snuff. It's understood at least six youngsters died on film after being lured to parties where the recordings were made. You murdered her. You and your friends. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You killed her on film, and now you're fucked. You're all fucked. Police have obtained a video they believe could be the murder victim. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my telling you stories of the old... Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American history. A war. story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hi, we missed you. How have you been? Good, I hope, because we're going to destroy your hopes and dreams this week. Pillage, plunder, tear them apart. Which is what you come to us for. (laughs) Yeah. Hope you're enjoying those rose-colored glasses. (laughs) So we do want to thank everybody for reaching out to us on Twitter and Instagram and all the other social media, all those that being just a story pod, um, where we post lots of fun things about the episode every week. Yeah, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, but we do have a Facebook group and a Facebook page. If you're into Facebook, whatever, cool, good for you. You make good choices. And you can also reach out to us on the Urban Legend Hotline. And that number is 512-222. Three three seven five, and there's a limit on the recording on that voicemail. If it cuts you off, just call back and keep talking. I'll listen to as many as you leave. You hear like someone's life story. <laughs> oh please, oh please! If you want to tell me your life story, like we we will figure out a way to get a bigger inbox. <laughs> and we also want to thank everyone that's rated and reviewed on iTunes and helped spread the word about the show. We've had amazing growth over the last year, and a recent review from GRNFR13. I don't know, maybe Greenfather? Maybe he's like a he or she. Is or what about a, Grandfather? I was thinking they were like an ecological priest. <laughs> I like your idea better. We're going with that. Also, you know, we've been talking about our one-year anniversary for the last month and the Pause Go Read It Prize. The Pause Go Read It Prize. This is the part of the show, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls people of all colors, creeds, and persuasions, where I pull out the magical mystery hat of fate. So we took anyone that commented, tweeted, helped spread the word, left a review on iTunes, and we're going to pick one name out of this hat, and they will win either something from our Pause Go Read It store, which is lots and lots and lots of the books that we read and talk about on the show, where we frequently say, Pause. Go read it. Or we'll also let you pick a t-shirt from our new merch store. Yes, and those are hand-crafted. Not really. They're hand-designed by me with an original graphic. That is not the show logo. The time has come, ladies and gentlemen, for us to reach into our magical mystery hat and pull out a name for the Pause Go Read It prize. I'm so excited. It genuinely is exciting. All right, well, the uh, special delivery aardvark is here with a magical mystery hat, and I am reaching inside, and the winner is Word Girl to You. 
If you will send us an email at justastorypod at gmail.com, we will send you a lovely selection of your choosing from the Pause Go Read It store. Or you can choose from some of our awesome merchandise. Which I would highly recommend. And you can find that our merch by going to our website and clicking just some merch. Right, and the website is Just a Story Pod, and on that website, you'll find lots of sources for all of our rants for every episode. This is true. You'll also be able to stream the show directly or get to iTunes if you haven't already, and you can see lots of my pretty drawings, or creepy drawings, or my pretty creepy drawings. Pretty creepy. Comma? They're pretty creepy. Is there a comma? But sometimes. (laughs) All right, fine. And last but not least, we do want to mention that we now have our Patreon page. Patreon page. There's a song. Did you know there was a song? Oh, I'm so excited. I just songed that. Thank you. And verbed it. All right. And ladies and gentlemen, may we have a round of applause for our new patrons, the three contributors at the all the Freud's levels. And that all the Freud's level is our top level where after a few months, you will get to help us put on a show. In which we song things. We're not really going to song things. We might. Depends. But contributing to that glorious, glorious level, we have Ignacio Ulandalonso and Hannibal Ulandalonso and Joe Galvin. So thank you guys. Yeah, so look out in the next few months. They'll be coming on the show. And at the Urban Legendary level, we have Zach Hewitt and Gorekitten83. And all these people will have access to our new mini-cast, which the first episode is up already, featuring the story of the Phantom Barber of Pascagoula. Pascagoula. Ah, love that word. Still love it. And on the Patreon page, all of our patrons over the $2 level will receive an exclusive sticker designed by... Me again. It's me again. That's true. You don't want me to design it. No, I don't. I don't even want you to write it. You had two options in life. You could be a doctor or you could be a serial killer with that handwriting. So now I'm going to be a doctor and talk about serial killers. You've walked that line. Speaking of. Speaking of. Back to the story at hand. Oh, and what is that story? We started the episode with some very disturbing news reports. Bum, bum, bum. Of something called a snuff film. Is this where people get snuffed out on camera? Yes. Oh, I thought I was being overly dramatic. So a snuff film, being something in a way of an urban legend, has varying definitions. Right. I think it's a moving target. It really is. And I think that its its definition has changed over time because people find out that something exists and it's less sensational, so it gets upped, I guess? Well, maybe. I mean, who knows what exists? (laughs) I guess we might look into that today. Maybe. So what is the colloquial, I know there's not an agreed upon, but the most common, if you will, definition of a snuff film? So a snuff film is something that is created and produced showing the real life murder of somebody. And it is sold for profit. Okay. And it is made for entertainment purposes. Okay, so in theory, CCTV footage capturing a murder is not technically a snuff film. No, while they're terrible and awful, and you can see plenty of them online, they are not snuff films because they're not made purposefully. 
Right, that person would have died even if the camera wasn't there. True. And in this instance, they would not have. I think that's an important part of the definition is like the victim would not have been killed by this person if there was not a camera rolling. Right. It's intentional. Very, very intentional. And maybe that's why people are so horrified by the idea. I think it's definitely a huge component. And an interesting thing about this kind of legend of snuff films is that it's often not like a story in the sense that someone would tell the story. It's kind of used more as an explanation than like a narrative. So it's not necessarily like giving you a warning about not going and making out with your boyfriend in the car. Okay. Not a cautionary tale. Right. It's more, I don't know, it's almost more like a cautionary tale against the world. I don't know. I don't know if it's offered as an explanation or if it's just a debate. Like it was just something people argue about. Well, that's very true. It is something people argue about, but it's also something people use. They use as supporting evidence for the evils that men do. Okay, so in that realm of like organ trafficking and uh, like satanic panic and like satanic ritual abuse and that kind of stuff, you think? Yeah, it's in that vein, but without a story because there's not like one story going around. If you think about like the kidney organ traffickers, there's okay. that one story. The call 911 if you want to live. Great punchline. First episode we ever did. You know, there's a very specific story. Of course, it has little changes, but it's got those main points. And this is kind of this amorphous idea almost. Right. And I think that's very similar to satanic ritual abuse. It's just that it happens or it doesn't happen or, you know, that it happens in varying degrees. Like maybe you have a narrative like Michelle Remembers come out, which that's the third episode we ever did. Call back. Way, way back. I don't know if we can, we can get that without uh, paying for a long-distance plan. <laughs> Snuff films are just sort of this evolution of people believing that we are monsters. It's like there's more pop psychology and just more people know that there are psychopaths. And there is an inordinately high number of incidents of violence against women, especially in the United States. And there's a t- of violence in mainstream media and entertainment media as well as within pornography right it's almost like the start of that slippery slope like if we let gays get married next thing you know people will be marrying ducks people are marrying ducks you say oh my gosh we need to get the just a story team on this if you know anyone who's married a duck or fucked a turkey please call us no buggering i saw that word used in context the other day like in a modern news report did it have to do with cattle? No. Like, the boys were being buggered. Oh, my. <laughs> Not sure what news articles you're reading. Oh, for this. Oh, so it was actually used appropriately. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Like I didn't think people still used that. I didn't that. either. I it was archaic. I did, too. I think that one reason the snuff film legend or idea is so pervasive is because it's got a catchy name, dude. Like, just great name. So where did the name come from? Where do we get snuff films from? Where, like, take me back. To take the, you back. To the origin of the story. If you okay. Will. So, you know, this term was probably used colloquially for a while. But the first written use of it was in 1971 related to the Manson family murders. Mm. Okay, so Charlie Manson and his cult of sexy ladies and a couple of guys and lots of drugs and the Beatles. Lots and the Beach of, Boys. And the Beach Boys. Yeah. Charlie never got more than a couple of steps in, in the door of a record store. 
he stopped at the bees. So Charlie thought the end of the world was coming and he wanted to start a race war because the Beatles told him to. We're going to do a whole show on Manson one day and we will talk about it. We will talk about it. Don't worry. We're going to take care of you. But today, for the purposes of this story, what you need to know. Charlie thought he was going to incite a race war. And for some reason, he believed that in order to do this, he needed to kill rich white folks and make it look like poor black folks had done it. Great plan. <laughs> Good plan, Charlie. Charlie wasn't that smart. He was charismatic. But he wasn't that smart. Or tall. So he sent his minions into Hollywood. And the most famous murder that they committed was probably the Tate murders, which was a mass murder at the home of Sharon Tate, the wife of Roman Polanski, who was eight months pregnant at the time. They scrawled words in blood and made the scene look as shocking as possible in order to get media attention on the scene, which was a great plan. All of this is so stupid, but it was horrific. There was an automatic link to film, and I think that people probably just said, has to be a movie. There was a lot of rumor going around that they did have these brutality films, also called snuff films. And the first time it was in print, from what I could find, is an Ed Sanders 1971 book about the Mansons. And that's called The Family, the story of Charles Manson's Dune Buggy Attack Battalion. So actually, this is funny because there was a movie made on intentionally like low quality film later called mm-hmm. like the Manson Family Murders or something like that in the 80s. But it pulled off the look of being like handheld video from that era. And so people really dug in and perpetuated the rumor at that point because there was this movie. It was a movie. And everyone thought it was real. Right. But it wasn't. It was the director's like friends. Yeah. <laughs> they had done it. So the rumors going around that they were making these snuff films... There was an incident in 1969 where they did steal an NBC truck loaded with film equipment. Oh, Charlie. The truck was dumped, but one of the cameras and film was kept. They also did, or known, and these were found, to have three Super 8 cameras that they used to make sex tapes. Those were religious rituals. Right. Done on acid from given from High Priest Charlie after he communed with his deities, John... Paul, George, and Ringo. Ringo gets to be a deity? I don't know if he did or not, actually. <laughs> I don't think he listened much. No, actually, he really he really dug Octopus's garden, so <laughs> there is that. So, one of the family members was asked about these films, and he said that he saw a short movie depicting a female victim dead on the beach. And so as the author was speaking to him, he said, I, I, I knew, I know, I only know about one snuff movie. I, uh, you know, and the author says, which snuff movie do you know about? Because I just know like a young chick, maybe about 27, short hair, yeah, and uh, chopped her head off. That was, uh, what did the girl look like? What was the scenario? What was what? <laughs> <laughs> good, good. This is no, going well. No drugs were involved in this. What was what, man? He's like, what was the scenario? Was she f- tied up? Did she look willing? And he says, uh, she was dead. She was just lying there. She was already dead? Uh, yeah, legs spread. Uh, she was nude, but n- nobody was fucking her. Oh, good. They said her head was just chopped off and she was just lying there. They Who's they? Exactly. They said. So he never even saw the video. He was just relating a story. It was a friend of a friend. Yeah. Yeah. Passing on. So glad someone wrote this down so that we have this 
valuable information to refer back to. Do you want a Scooby snack for coming in today and speaking with us, Mr. Anonymous member of the Manson family? Rut row, Charlie. But there were the rumors going around. They killed the killers had taped the murders and that these tapes were screened in elite Hollywood circles. And some things that kind of lent to this was that there were also rumors that the Plansky house was full of amateur porn featuring S&M orgies. It probably was. It probably was. Well, Robert Polanski <laughs> did eventually get in trouble for taking some pictures he shouldn't have taken. Of children. Of a 14-year-old girl. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why he's not in America anymore. That's right. You know, like I mentioned, it's always that these movies are passed around among the elite, the special secret group, and these Hollywood executives are sitting around watching it or you know if you had enough money and you knew the right guy you could buy one of these films so it's automatically associated with wealth and privilege these are not things that poor people want to look at these are just these rich depraved assholes who have no morals joseph mccarthy says what well also it fed into the idea of like that negative view of counterculture Mm -hmm. you know the murderous ritual abuse that was tied in with charles manson which he was he was a cult leader who killed people, yeah, or had people killed, whatever. Had the ideas of the huge groups of roaming murderous hippies. Yeah, they definitely like killed. They killed hippies. They killed not. They didn't actually kill hippies. They killed Sharon Tate, but they killed the idea of hippies. They ruined it for everybody. Right, and these ideas did later kind of transfer on to that satanic panic idea. Of course, absolutely. Manson is hugely influential in the framework that we're going into when we really get a lot of these, like, Geraldo Rivera urban legends. Like, stuff that aired on daytime TV. About his mustache? Uh, That is not a legend, sir. I have seen it with mine own two eyes. Oh, it's quite legendary. It is legendary, but it is not an urban legend. It is not just a story. So, we do have... Several very reputable sources saying that they have seen snuff films. How do you mean reputable? So Ted Bundy. That's how you mean reputable. All right, I'll go with you. Implicated snuff films and his porn addiction. Okay. Into his descent, into his murderous rampages. All right, all right we're going to do a whole episode of Bun- on Bundy one day, I promise. We're going to take care of you, don't worry. But right now, for the purposes of this story, what you need to know is... He was a serial killer. He was a serial killer. Killed lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of ladies uh, in lots of states. Drove a Volkswagen Beetle. Feel that's important. When he was on death row, he was making this like very clamorous uh, attempt to not be executed in Florida, which good luck with that. <laughs> and um, Florida man. Florida man strikes again. Florida man says that he saw snuff films. <laughs> Florida man says that. Ted Bundy is not getting out of this jail. He'd already escaped jail several times and things. He's crafty little dude. Republican. Also a Republican. Also an important point. Uh, very. Volkswagen Beetle, Republican. Contradictions. Cognitive dissonance. Drove him crazy. But during this attempt to save himself, he was like, I'll talk to profilers. I can be studied. Learn from me. And then he was like, I like Jesus now. I like Jesus too. I like Jesus so much. And so his last interview before going to be executed was with a pastor and when he was talking about his conversion he implicated snuff films and violent pornography in making him a serial killer note pastor also had a rabid rabid anti-porn campaign prior to connecting with bundy so this played nicely into his hand another reputable source okay 
David Barkowitz. Okay. <sighs> he said there was a convoluted conspiratorial plot involving a cult called The Process that led to his spree of murders in the service of a snuff film market. And he said that tapes of his murder of Stacy Moskowitz fetched 50 grand. Well, okay. So David Berkowitz is the son of Sam, operated in New York, killed people, was really into shooting people, though. And it was like a walk-by shooting. So I find it unlikely that his tapes of any tapes of his murders fetched much on the market. But... We're going to do a whole episode on David Berkowitz, don't worry. For the purposes of this story, what you need to know is that he made some really crazy out there claims about this process church thing, and some of them turned out to be true. Some were not just a story. Yeah, so hard to say. Hard to say with David Berkowitz. He does a lot of talking. And have another murderer, not as big a guy, but Thomas Shiro, that also said that he was corrupted by viewing rape pornography and snuff films. I don't know that guy. (laughs) Good. (laughs) he's probably got like what one victim you're right (laughs) ah bush league just kidding just kidding not encouraging anyone to up their numbers on my account all right so some murderers saw some some snuff films apparently (laughs) so snuff films make people murderers uh yeah sure i'm using fox news logic just go with me (laughs) good job yay so when the word snuff and the idea of a snuff film really really came into the popular consciousness was in the mid 70s so in 1976 a movie was released called snuff yes Ah, i'm on a roll they're very creative so this was supposedly a film where the end of the movie included the murder the real murder of the actress in the film well that would make it a snuff film and it was smuggled from South America. Where life is cheap. And is now being shown in your local grindhouse theater. <laughs> God bless America. So the poster, and I'll say you're walking by this, this CD <laughs> grindhouse exploitation theater, said, the picture, they said, could never be shown. The film that could only be made in South America, where life is cheap. I got it again. The bloodiest thing that has ever happened in front of a camera. That sounds exciting. So this movie was produced by Monarch Releasing Corporation and filmed in Argentina. It was filmed in 1971. At that time, it was called Slaughter. Snuff is way catchier. And it was terrible. It, I watched some of it. It's really, it. really bad. It's, it's softcore porn with murder and gory like 70s effects. And it had like a little bit of a release and then was shelved. So... Alan Shackleton was an exploitation film producer, and we'll talk more about what those films are in a minute. And he read a newspaper article in 1975 on the rumor of snuff films being produced in South America. And immediately, he just saw dollar signs. Good on him, man. That's the dream. This is so American. This is so American. For anybody who's not from America, this is like what it's about. Yes. So he took this terrible Argentinian film. It's kind of extremely loosely based on the idea of the Manson family. There's this like cult leader, this charismatic guy, and then there's a bunch of hot girls that are very frequently topless, and they're a biker gang, and they go around killing lots of people in just like the cheesiest effect fashion campy 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 camp and what he did was he went and and filmed this scene this five minute scene where the actress gets killed 
And it's filmed very kind of shaky cam. Gonzo. Yeah, Gonzo. Documentary-like. They show it's extremely graphic. Extremely graphic. We will definitely have a link to it on the website if you care to watch it. I'm betting it, it. yeah. (laughs) But it's, oh, the cheesiness. The cheesiness. And in it, he, you know, Stabs her a few times, and then he cuts her fingers off, and then he slices her stomach open and pulls her intestines out, and he's like, Rah! like holding it up. Like, literally, that noise comes out of the actor. And there's also some miscellaneous internal organ attached to the intestines, and Jacob, Jacob and all his medical learning could not identify it. It's like, maybe a liver, maybe a cow liver. I'm not sure. So he released this film and he let the word spread that it was real. He even hired fake protesters to protest the film. Now, he was kind of wasting his time because real protesters showed up very soon. As they are wont to do. Including the Woman Against Pornography League. Okay, yeah, I remember them. And so good old Gloria Steinem was very rapidly against this and encouraged its investigation. It was investigated by the New York DA who quickly dismissed it because he can see the crappy effects as nothing more than conventional trick photography as is evident to anyone who sees the film. But you know what? All of this bad press, you know, there's no such thing as bad press. He made a ton of money, shit ton of money. And in the first three weeks, it was released the same time as one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I've heard of it. Yeah, it's okay. All of my favorite movies. And it made more money in the first three weeks than when Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest did. Oh. But it was, like I said, it was terrible. It's a terrible film. There's no way it's real. The New York Post review at the time said, it has less nudity than you see in an average issue of National Geographic (laughs) and less torture than exists in most Saturday morning cartoons. Except for the ketchup-soaked three-minute finale. <laughs> ketchup-soaked. It is. Like, it is that color red. It's, it's, it's like orange-ish. Like, I'm like, that's not what blood looks like. But it made a splash. It sure did. And the guy was a marketing genius. I mean, like, to pull in a real South American movie and, like, tack this on. Like, it is such a good gimmick. No, it is. <laughs> it's terrible, but it's great. America. America. So in 1978, a film was released called Faces of Death. And this became a film series. They released several, several follow-ups to it. It involved a sequence of six videos with footage of accidents, suicides, autopsies, and executions. Now, these scenes, many of them were real. But many of them were not, sounds like. Exactly. And they mixed the real scenes, such as one of a skydiver where his parachute did not function with another scene that is obviously filmed <laughs> of, like, people killing a monkey and eating its brain. Ooh. Okay, but I'm going to go ahead and say that this does not come up to our colloquially agreed upon most popular, most common definition of a snuff film because that skydiver would have died if a camera was not rolling. It's more of that caught-on-tape phenomena. Right, and then, but then they mixed in the more what you would consider a snuff film if it was real in it, but they were fake. But it gave it this like feeling of authenticity because it was next to these like newsreel footage of someone being hit by a car and the paramedics scooping up their brains. Why would you watch? I know everyone has. I know everyone has. We watched a lot of this in, in researching. Yeah, but we were researching. <laughs> yeah, because we don't do this 
show completely out of curiosity. <laughs> I would not have watched someone like eat fake monkey brains. Indiana Jones. I've heard of it. So another great snuff film that came out in 1980 was an Italian-produced film called Cannibal Holocaust. Wow, they don't dodge that title, do they? And so I love the concept of this movie. So apparently there's this documentary crew, mm-hmm. and they go around the world filming all these atrocities, and they decide that they are going to go to the Amazon and film these real cannibal tribes. Good idea. Yeah. They go into the Amazon and they are... Eaten! I don't know. They're lost. Oh. They're lost. And oh. so they put together a rescue operation and they go and they find the films. And it's like this great, kind of one of the first movies that uses that idea of found footage in a scary movie. Because it's, they find this footage and you have no idea what it's going to be. But it shows them... Basically torturing this Amazonian tribe to... Wait, wait, they're not supposed to torture people. They're a documentary crew. Where's their sense of ethics? <laughs> None. Oh, As oh, they're l- bad documentarians? Apparently. Oh, no. And so they go and they're like setting their houses on fire and like hurting people. And Why would they do that? Yeah, to make them do bad stuff? Were they right, just, they were bullying them? Yes. There's just some great little moments in it. You know, when the documentary could be like, you know, like smiling and joking, and then you'll hear the guy behind the camera go, hey, we're filming, and he'll like stop and like make a serious face and be like, oh my God, I can't believe this. <laughs> this uh, Okay, I'm aware that this was filmed in 1980, and it is probably just like nothing but gore, just walls and walls of gore. But like the concept, the basic idea... I would pitch the hell out of that if I was in an elevator with somebody. Like, I I love the idea of it. Like, this layered, like, meta picture with the scam within a scam within a scam. And, like... And then, of course, at the end of the found footage, the cannibals or the Amazonian tribe get super angry because uh, they've been torturing them. Mm. And they, they eat them. Good. Because they're... Cannibals. And it's... Yeah, got it. It's the Holocaust? No, uh, it's uh, the... It's the cannibal holocaust. Like, they went through the bad stuff, right? I don't know. Wait, we're not... I think they were using buzzwords. Fine. Fine. They were not doing SEO optimization. So, similar to in Snuff, the director kind of helped spread the rumor and didn't really comment on if this found footage, the found footage part, was real. And he even had all of the actors in that part sign contracts saying that they would not be in any other media for one year after the film was released. (laughs) God, I love a con. I love a con so much. Okay. This is going to go so terribly for this man if it's halfway believable. Right. So the effects are a lot better than in snuff. Like the one scene where this girl's impaled. What? And she's just hanging there completely nude, like covered in blood. And it looks like there is a stick going up her and going through her mouth. That's horrible. Yeah. And that's what the Italian government thought when they seized all the films and arrested the director on obscenity charges. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, the Italian justice system is like a cartoon. So it does not surprise me in the least. 
So, eventually, with all the rumors going around, he was then brought on murder charges. Oh, my God. And then the actors aren't there. Exactly. The actors are away in hiding as per their contract. Right. So, they had to go find the actors and get them to come and testify. Like, I'm here. Hey, I'm still alive. I'm not here. Eating back animals in the Amazon. I'm still here. I love that one. I mean, there's so many examples of this. I'm going to give you one more. Okay. No, I liked that story so much. I'll hear another. Another. <laughs> so this one involves Charlie Sheen. Oh, Charlie. Oh, Tiger Blood. What's old Tiger Blood have for us today? This was in 1991. And he was at a screening at a friend's house. One of these Hollywood elite, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they showed this film. I'm sure he had a lot of cocaine in his system. Why and did you think that? I don't know. Because he was winning. He was winning. <laughs> and he saw this film. And it was an Asian film, and it showed a samurai torturing and then dismembering a girl. I actually saw this footage. This is from the guinea pig series, isn't it? It's from the guinea pig series, but he didn't know that. No. He said he was as high as all hell, and he called the police, he called the MPAA, and he was like, there's this real snuff film, oh my god. And of course- at that moment, he was losing. He was losing. Charlie was losing. He was trying to help humanity. He was. Like, I don't, like, I hate these stories. Because, like, what if it was? And nobody nobody said anything. No, it's true. Like, good for Charlie. Like, But you're right. This is from a series of Japanese films called Guinea Pig. And this is one called Flower of Flesh and Blood. And in Charlie's defense, not that I want to go too much in Charlie's defense, but in Charlie's defense, I saw it and I, if I was a little high, I might, I would definitely think it was real. If I was just cocaine i would probably think it was real it's really convincing this is why i don't give you cocaine <laughs> i'd call the mpa but i'd call them about like spongebob too or something <laughs> like, there's a sponge you have to get someone down there get on your scuba gear mpaa <laughs> i'm coming with <laughs> do you have scuba gear no i'm a mermaid motherfucker let's go so even the first film in the series definitely played on that found footage kind of thing. And a lot of these fake snuff films do that. And with the title card saying, the producers received this video. There was no accompanying information. We are researching name, age, and other information about the girl and her three killers. That's a good title card. Fun fact, as we've been talking about found footage ideas so much. I was reading about found footage the other day and researching this and... I stumbled across the thing that made an argument that War of the Worlds was the first found footage. I like that idea. I it's do a too. fun idea. I mean, this was not the these are not the first. They are like some of the big things that brought it into the mainstream. I know they're not the first. <laughs> so the idea of snuff films has been just circulating since the kind of sixties and seventies and probably before then, but that's really when it got into the mainstream. And all of these fake snuff films, these movies that people claim to be snuff films and the public thinks are have just helped propagate that idea and people are just convinced that they exist on october 1975 the new york post and the daily news carried stories about the fbi and police hunting these snuff films down with articles titled snuff porn the actress is actually murdered and hey this is a great title good job last picture show Sex and real murder. Wow, we're creative in the 70s. We had a like little renaissance, didn't we? Chemical help? 
Yeah, that's true. America was winning, motherfucker. Quoting a New York police detective saying, I'm convinced these films actually exist and that a person is actually murdered. I suppose you could say they are the ultimate obscenity. Okay, and I think that has just formed the thesis for our episode. I believe that is why this rumor persists and like why people talk about it the way they do. It is the ultimate obscenity. All right, you cannot get worse. Like I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Where's that line from? Our murder ballots episode? Yeah, Johnny Cash. Okay. Should, yeah, Johnny Cash, Folsom Prison Blues. And when he went to write that line, he was like, what's the worst thing a human could do? Shoot a man just to watch him die. And that's what these would be. Right? And that idea of violence being captured and captured for entertainment purposes and viewed by the masses is not just from the 60s. Death being depicted has been around as long as we've been depicting things. Right. I mean, you can go back to our like murderer's art episode and hear about some of the infinitely famous works like the death of Marat and the raft of the Medusa and things like that that were put down in oils. Um, but as soon as we had photography, we were taking pictures of dead folk. Photography kind of came about in 1820. And by the 1830s, we were doing post-mortem photography. Post-mortem photography is a phenomenon in and of itself, but it is where people would have their loved ones photographed after they died. Because a lot of times kids would die young and they wouldn't have had a portrait made or things like that. And they're very serene images. Sometimes you can't tell the folks are dead. That's creepy. They're haunting images that were created throughout the Victorian era. Now, those are very peaceful images. Now, we get the first, like, gory graphic awful images. War. War. What What is it good for? Do you know that was the original title of War and Peace? Say it again, y'all. But Civil War, actually, in America, the people were carrying photos out into the battlefields. This was not a war happening across an ocean. This was happening at home, and they could go out and take pictures of what was happening. And they did. Now, at the time, the pictures could not be distributed by mass media, i.e. newspapers, because they did not have the technology to put in, like, halftone and run photographs. So they were still doing all drawings in newspapers at this time. But... One uh, photographer named Brady did exhibit his series of Civil War photographs at a gallery. Wow, he is like a real artist. He is. He had photographed the Battle of Antietam, which had a humongous death toll. And a New York Times reviewer in 1865 went to the exhibition and gave us this glowing spot of journalism. And I'm being completely serious. Like The more old newspapers I read, the more I'm like... We're failing so badly at documenting our era. Mr. Brady has done something to bring home to us the terrible reality and earnestness of war. If he had not brought the bodies and laid them on our dooryard and so along the streets, he has done something very like it. At the door of his gallery hangs a little placard, the dead of Antietam. Crowds are constantly going up the stairs. Follow them and you find them bending over photographic views of the fearful battlefield taken immediately after the action, of all the objects of horror, one would think that the battlefield should stand preeminent and that it should bear away the palm of repulsiveness. But on the contrary, there's a terrible fascination about it. It draws one near these pictures and makes them loth to leave them. You will see hushed, reverend groups standing around these weird copies of Carnage, bending down to look on the pale faces of the dead, chained by the strange spell that dwells in the dead men's eyes. Oh, that's haunting. It's 
amazing and i think it's so interesting because like this is the first instance this is my like sighting it's like a car crash you just can't look away like this is that moment when people are like you would think this would be terrible and then no one can stand to look at it but you can't stop looking at it which is another feature of snuff and gore so as people are rolling newsreels and taking footage you have things like the death of emily davison who's that well, she was a suffragette. Oh, not one of those. Oh, yes. She wanted to vote in things. That saucy minx. And she was protesting one day in 1913. And she was trampled to death. By, trampled? Trampled to <laughs> oh death. By, wait, what's the worst thing? What What's the worst thing it could be? Wildebeest. Like Mufasa? Stampede in the gorge. No, no, no. Simba's down there. My, my youth is flashing before my eyes. That it would be horrible, but it was worse. Disney snuff film. It Dis- was. It was. Oh my god, it was. It was worse actually than Mufasa. It was King George's coach. Irony. The irony of it. And so the moment where she was trampled was captured on film. She died four days later. So it doesn't technically qualify, even taking our definition loosely. But then there was the footage of Frank Lockhart, who was attempting to set a land speed record in 1928, in which he was thrown out of the vehicle and summarily died on camera. I mean, of course, in the 40s you have all the world war ii newsreels right and they would pretty much allow valuable footage like stuff that actually contained like culturally relevant content to be shown especially in britain until they got involved in the war but they did say that it could not be aired for longer than a week even in the movie houses and it wasn't specifically graphic i mean it was getting shot in the head but then you come to what everyone cites is the beginning of violence in the home, violence in mass media. Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Dan. Oh, Lieutenant Dan. It was bad. And I think the difference between what we saw in World War Two, because we saw horrible images, and what we saw in Vietnam is that these images were, one, in color, which is terrible. It's much more relatable. And two, coming into our homes on our televisions. We did not have to sign up to see them. We didn't have to go sit through the newsreel at the movie house. Right, the photographs were in Life magazine, winning Pulitzers. They were rough. And some of the iconic images from this era include Nguyen Van Lim, who was a member of the National Liberation Front, being executed publicly in 1968. And there were still photographs of that moment as well as a movie reel that was captured. He had the Buddhist monk Thich Quang Duc committing suicide by lighting himself on fire, protesting uh, in 1963, which is one of those photographs that will has and will continue to go down in history as just shocking and haunting. Haunting, that word keeps coming up, but it is. And uh, you also have the Kennedy assassination, which was captured. By, not, but not by newsreels, though. No, that was actually on 8mm of a spectator. And that tape was confiscated by the government and withheld from the public for a while. And so when it was released, it was a huge deal. And it's been duplicated and you know, posted so many places and featured so many things. But what was captured alive? Oh, the follow-up. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald being shot by Jack Ruby. Conspiracy. So one of the reasons that these kind of documentary photographs and films have such emotional resonance is because you feel sort of abandoned there with the images. When you're watching narrative film or fiction, you can kind of 
follow the lead of the filmmaker. That is their job. They're to be your guides and they're to tell you where to look and how to feel and, you know, use a score as emotional fascism. Right. But here you're told this is real. This is real life. Watch it. And you're abandoned. Like I said, you are abandoned there with that image and that moment and you have to process it. You don't have someone holding your hands. And a lot of film theory talks about the gaze of the camera and this documentary gaze, this like purely clinical remove can cause a lot of like cognitive dissonance for a viewer because they're forced to interpret themselves without context. It has a very big impact on people when they see these images, knowing that it's not a setup. But when these images are more intentional, when they are done on purpose, then that's just a whole different story. When someone who is photographing or filming puts themselves in the narrative, we see them more clearly than we see the subject sometimes. And that was certainly the case in 1957. What happened then? Well, uh, the glamour girl killer was haunting Los Angeles looking for leading ladies. Sounds like a film noir. It could have been and probably was. So in 1957 through 1958, there was an active serial killer in Los Angeles. He was posing as a photographer, and he would respond to girls who had placed ads in the work-wanted sections of the classifieds, hoping to have their picture taken and get discovered. Be a big movie star. Oh, my stars and goddars. So, for those of you who don't know, this happened while pulp true crime detective magazines were all the rage. So, I kind of knew, in general, what a pulp magazine was. It you know had these kind of suggestive photos usually of detectives and then of women kind of scantily clad in precarious situations and then stories sometimes real most of the time they were they'd mix them you know they'd have these real stories next to these fictional stories those just stories that's right like faces of death yeah, I mean, they did definitely combine some fiction and some not fiction, but they did cover major cases of the time, and they would often have usually artist renderings. They were usually not photographs. Artist renderings of women bound, gagged, tied up, you know, being carried away over someone's shoulder, that sort of thing. And that only got worse as time went on. Eventually, they were real photographs. We looked through some from the 70s and 80s the other day, and oh my god. They are amazing. They're terrible. They're so bad. We found them shocking. But he was interested in these types of magazines. The Glamour Girl Killer? Yes. And he would tell the women that he was going to photograph them for those types of magazines to be the life models from which these artist renderings were created or, you know, stock photos. He would initially start out, you know, saying, look scared for the camera. And then they would really look scared. So he used it as an excuse. He used it as a as bait. And these words were spoken to detectives. I would make them kneel down with a gun on them. I would tie this five-foot piece of rope around their ankles, and I'd loop it up around their neck. And then I would stand there and keep pulling until they quit struggling. And those words were spoken by one Harvey Glattman. He killed a total of three women, Judy Ann Dole, who was 19 and she was an aspiring model. Shirley Ann Bridgeford, recently divorced woman with a young child. And Ruth Rita Mercado, referred to in the press at the time as a striptease dancer. Oh my. Oh my. So, I mean, how was he caught? Well, he was caught red-handed. Really? It really is a crime noir. 
he had used this lure again to get in contact with a an aspiring model named Lorraine Vigil. He asked her to get in his car and go to the studio with him. And they were driving, and they were driving away from town. And she started to get nervous, and she started asking questions. At which point he pulled a gun on her. And the music swelled. Yes. And she said in later interviews, I instinctively reached for the gun and got it away from him. Badass. She is. Like, how is that an instinct? That's not my instinct. Because she's a badass. She is. She is so much more of a badass than I ever will be. So when they started struggling in the car, he pulled off the road. She opened her door and tried to get away. And he chased her. And they were literally wrestling over the gun. And she was bloody from the gun going off when she grabbed it and shooting her thigh, grazing her thigh. And a police officer happened by. He said, stop, police. Yes. And she said, he's trying to kill me, mister. I swear to God. Oh, my God. <laughs> this isn't really a crime noir movie. So obviously, they take him in. And to the police officer's credit, across jurisdictions in the state of California, having just all been to this conference where they talked about unsolved cases, they had put those three murders that I had mentioned earlier into a little box. Good job, detectives. Good job. And they said, probably all the same guy. They also noted that everyone who had seen the killer, because they he would come and like pick him up and like talk to their moms and sisters and brothers-in-law and things, like make small talk. And they everyone who had seen him had been like, he had huge ears. Jug ears. Jug ears. They said it looks like the hand, handles on the sides of a jug. Good looking guy. Good looking guy. He was. Classy guy. I mean, he was no Ted Bundy. <laughs> Few people are. Oh, Ted. So... He was brought in by police for questioning, and they suspected that this was the guy when they heard the ruse he had used for Lorraine, and they said that matches really closely with these open cases, and we're going to pursue this. And so they questioned him, and he would not fess up, and they asked him to take a lie detector test, and he said, I think I would enjoy the experience, gentlemen. Bobby or stupid. Probably stupid. Probably both. Just like nothing to lose at that point, I guess. Tell me how stupid he was. Oh, he was so stupid. Oh my God, he was so stupid. He was sitting there and they started asking him um, murders they knew he had nothing to do with. And they said the name of one of the girls. He did have something to do with him after that series of questions. And he like burst out, yes, I killed her. I killed the doll girl. But I didn't have anything to do with those other two. And then he listed off the rest of the things he had done and took them to the bodies and pled guilty and said he just wanted to die. So stupid. So stupid. Because he had a really good case for a not criminally responsible defense. He had been in and out of mental institutions since he was like 14. But he was executed in the gas chamber and died like within a year of being caught. Swift justice. Yeah, back when the legal system worked. You remember that? No, I was not there. I wasn't either, but I hear tell. Now, the interesting thing is when he assumed that he'd been caught by police finding his album of death. Album of death? Yes, his album of death. You it sounds like something Megadeth would put out. I think they did, actually. But he says, you wouldn't be asking me about any of this unless you'd found my album of death. I don't know if he used those words, but, you know, police did or writers did. They were like, your album of death, you say? And he's like, yes, my album of death, which I keep in my home. He was really, really stupid. Bright guy bright guy and they're like hey uh jimmy get out there find the album of death jimmy goes and finds the album of death comes back all of the murders have been documented in full detail and he has created a pictorial scrapbook oh well he had good hobbies he did he did he's a fun guy created a full scrapbook of the victims and the actual murders taking place on camera for the win there but he had a dark room so he didn't have to take his film to get developed 
lucky guy, I guess. But when they found these photos, they did a funny thing. What funny thing did they do? They released them to the public. That sounds like a terrible idea. They're in every newspaper. I got on like my newspaper archive and I looked up Harvey Glattman and man, it doesn't matter. Small town USA, whatever. These images of these girls bound and gagged are all over the newspapers. Including the true crime pulps. These photos actually won journalism awards too. Like people were lauded and commended for doing this good, good service. Interestingly, there was a young boy named Dennis reading these true crimes. And Dennis talks about the day that he discovers detective magazines in his father's car when he was about 13. It was a February 1959 issue of Front Page Detective. So it's like finding a playboy, like your dad's playboy? I think so. And the article was called The Sex Crazed Photographer in His Graveyard of Models. Like all of the amazing titles from that time in those pulps. He read the article while masturbating. Oh my getting graphic this is exactly the pictures and the theme that i dreamed about the women in the photos knew they were going to die latman liked to bind their bare legs over the knees and their hands behind them he even placed a gag of twisted rope over their mouths one woman wearing just a slinky white slip lay on a blanket bound at the ankles knees and hands with a rope going across her midriff Calm down, Dennis. He didn't. Ever. Sweet young Dennis put his father's magazine back in the car. But the photographs resonated with him and inspired him. Inspired him? The image of the woman staring terrified, knowing that death was coming, was frozen for me. It was part of my sexual fantasy for the rest of my life. How is this kid inspired by this? Who is this guy? Oh, you know, little Dennis. Dennis, like Dennis the Menace. Yes. He goes on to be quite a menace. In fact, he becomes Dennis Raider. Okay. You still stare at me blankly because you don't know anything about true crime. He becomes BTK. The BTK killer. It's like saying ATM machine. <sighs> yes, the BTK killer. No, he becomes BTK. He becomes a guy that like kills like half of the Midwest. Which BTK stands for? Fine, torture, kill. Oh, Wow. They got that on the nose, whoever named him. He named himself! <laughs> okay. Narcissism's gonna be a major theme tonight. Buckle up, babe. So, I guess we actually do have a real serial killer that really did see a photographic version of a snuff film that was inspired by it and did go and kill lots and lots of people. And interestingly, you also have Glattman, who was inspired by the fictional version. Another thing I find so disturbing is, like, this is really... It makes it so difficult to deny the connection between the idea of snuff films and sexual excitement. Right. I mean, you always, I mean, you talk about a lot and you always read about like that idea of the serial killers getting this kind of sexual excitement arousal from the murders. Well, they were originally called lust killers back before we had the name serial killers. So why do we change it? I don't know. It's so much better. Right, so there is this kind of almost undeniable link to kind of sexuality. Deviant sexuality. Deviance, they're right. It's like, oh, this is so bad. And, I'm- and so this idea of snuff films was very, very quickly tied to pornography. Pornography? Yes. No, say it ain't so. Now, there is nothing I just want to point out in the definition of a snuff film that says that it has to be sexually 
related. No, but I think that people assume that anyone who would want to see this is so perverse that they would feel sexual gratification from it. Like, I think that's a, like, like a pop psych analysis is like, oh, anyone who would seek this out and pay all the money, because that apparently is part of it, is you have to pay so much money for a snuff film and be a Hollywood elite. They must be sexually depraved, and that's got to be the purpose it serves. But you know, pornography has been around. What? Yes, just like that whole kind of prostitution being the what being the oldest profession pornography has also been around forever you know people always cite like the kama sutra and the depictions of sexual acts on the walls of pompeii and things like that but the modern idea of pornography was originally started as these kind of little films that would be shown like at your friend's house or they got more friends stag parties at kind of men's meetings fraternities and they'd get some guy to come in and show the little film i can't imagine that being Lear like in a strip club i guess Lear like in a strip club i guess you're right but in 1972 a film is released 1972 it's porn it's iconic yeah oh it's deep throat deep throat this predates watergate by the way which makes it so much better well right they used i know but i don't think people know that like i don't think people know it's a porn reference it's a porn reference (laughs) deep throat came out and it kind of helped mainstream pornography it went from being in the basement and being in the stag parties to being something people just watched and it took it out of the yeah no true out of the kind of deviancy and it has of course continually been mainstreamed to where now it's no big deal to kind of have that idea like oh yeah watch porn yeah you're not gonna grow hair on your palms and go blind that's scientific fact or sin of onan i don't think we'll know this the thing about deep throat is it was a cinematic release all of these Films, like in this era, are released in movie theaters. They are not home videos because that does not exist yet. These are viewed publicly. Right. But previously, if it had these kind of softcore kind of films or even you know more hardcore pornography, it was done in these kind of more CD theaters. And this eventually got enough press to where it was more widely released. And it was reviewed and it had real mainstream reviewers talking about it. It was kind of one of those things like everybody went see it. Yeah, and like if you look it up, it. you can see like a great list of public figures who went. Yeah. Like it's kind of, it's it's amusing. Like, honey, you know what we should do tonight it's- for our potluck and fondue party? Go over to Kevin's and let me stroke his chest hair. That's the key party. Oh, I'm sorry, the fondue party, the fondue party. Yet yeah, what? What? <laughs> Let's go see this new movie, Deep Throat. I hear- sounds like fun. I hear it's a gas. A gas, you say? It sounds groovy. But with pornography coming more into the main stream, all of our fine, upstanding citizens... The pearl clutchers? ...decided to take it up as their crusade. The pearl clutchers, yes. I'm well acquainted with them. Yes. Also called the Citizens for Decency. Oh, God. Okay. But the idea of pornography especially once they decided to really just try to use it as a symbol of the terribleness of society <laughs> and how we're all just going into the gutter and going to hell and Jesus is coming, whatever. Linda uh, Lovelace might as well actually be the handbasket in which we are all going to hell. So Linda Lovelace decided to testify before... 
the U.S. Attorney General. Okay. Now, Linda Lovelace is the... Leading lady of deep throat. She has a vagina in her throat, No, apparently. she doesn't. She's a clitoris in her throat. Oh, that was a vagina. No, why would you want your... Va- no. No, it's definitely a clitoris. Okay. <laughs> I haven't seen it. <laughs> have you not seen it? You haven't seen the I whole movie? I have The whole movie? I want to see it. <laughs> hey, you know what we should do this weekend? <laughs> Honey! Let's have some fondue and watch... <laughs> <laughs> yes! Yes. Can we tease our hair? I don't need to tease my hair. Right, you don't. Okay. Can I tease my hair? Yes. Thank you. So, Linda Lovelace testifies before the U.S. Attorney General saying that she has seen multiple snuff films and that they are the final destination for exploited porn stars. Right, so it became kind of their crook. So, it was integral in this anti-pornography activism. You know, they were not saying, oh, this one dude did it, which I get one guy. That does not mean the entire industry is involved. They were saying that this is where you wound up, that this is what the porn industry was doing. I think Miss Lovelace needed to call her analyst and go in and talk about projection. And stop doing so much cocaine. But she could be winning. Guys, I saw this film. Apparently, when you do cocaine, you see snuff films in your brain. This is why you don't do cocaine. Okay, that's drug warning. Yeah, a lot of times they like to throw out that term white slavery. God, <laughs> I hate it so much. I hate it. But, you know, it went against that idea that was becoming mainstream of porn just being kind of harmless fun. And Al Goldstein even offered $1 million for proof of a snuff film. There are varying numbers on that. I saw another place where the like porn association, whatever the group is, offer $250,000 for a snuff film, no questions asked. But anyway, no one, of course, came forward with it because the porn industry is not making snuff films. Well, no, the porn industry is not. I also saw a great quote from Al Goldstein, which said, like, if this rumor keeps going or persists, some asshole's going to do it for real eventually. I think that's always kind of the word with these snuff films, is that they will inspire somebody, just like Harvey Glattman inspired BTK Killer. But that's just <laughs> a story, right? So in 1974, Raymond Gower, who was one of the Citizens for Decency Through Law, <laughs> wrote a letter. Is that a different branch? It's the same one. Okay. I just didn't say the whole thing. <laughs> he said, one of my sources is convinced that snuff films exist in quantity and that they've been screened in the very end circles of Hollywood. But I'm convinced they exist because of what I know does exist. Well, that's a psychological phenomenon in and of itself, isn't it? Right. Again, you're talking about that idea of there's so many terrible things in the world. There's so many actually depraved people, like Harvey Glattman. It's like, why can this not exist? But of course, his argument is that there's an entire industry making them. Well, no, here's my problem with this entire thought process is that people are assuming that it is attached in any way to the mainstream existing self-policing pornography industry. Right. It's a ridiculous idea. So earlier I mentioned Gloria Steinem. Mm-hmm. Who's she? She is. She's glorious. I quite enjoy her, mainly because Google image search is so much fun. But she was an early feminist, um, probably second wave feminist. And she wrote an expose on her time spent as a Playboy bunny. Scandalous. 
She worked as a Playboy Bunny, which means she was cute enough to work as a Playboy Bunny. They had really rigorous uh, technical specs, if you will, for their Playboy Bunnies. Like a nice smile? Yeah, like that. And then decided that pornography was evil and led to sexual harassment. I think actually being in the company of men who go to clubs to grope women probably led to sexual harassment. But, you know, it could be porn. All the same. Whatever. The feminists at the time really took on porn as a example of the objectification of women. It's so hard to argue because like now like fourth wave feminism is so pro porn. Well, the pornography industry now is so different than what it was. Right. I, mean, I don't want to say that it was objectifying women at the time. I mean, of course, there's going to be a few examples of it, but was it? A- well, I mean, like objectification means treating like an object, and yeah, I mean they they are, but yeah, they're but you know objectifying the men too. They're objectifying sex, and aren't you signing up for it and choosing to do it and getting paid? I mean, that's for the it. argument now. That's the argument now for sure and for certain. I mean, there there are horror stories. It was not as pro woman as it is now, where women are some of the biggest producers that. Are in the porn industry now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it was a good symbol, and I think that there was a there was a. It was hard to draw a line between magazines like Playboy, which truly did present women as pretty little objects, and have clubs where men went to play grab ass with the bunny tails, um, and you know the film industry in which women were taking active part in like setting high fees and um, you know, where they were the commodity, they were the names attached to the pictures. I can't tell you the name of any man in deep throat, but I know Linda Lovelace, you know, like I, I know her name because of that movie. And, you know, there are several examples of women from that time that went on to be stars and producers, producers and directors and everything else. But I I think that it is really easy to conflate the idea of these old boys clubs that use ladies as decoration with the porn industry. Speaking of pornography, today we have a special guest that has come on to talk about pornography. Pornography and snuff films. And snuff films, because we've been talking about how the anti-pornography crusaders have been using snuff films as a kind of weapon, almost. Using this legend to try to snuff out porn. Oh, that's cute. You like that? No, so <laughs> today we have Heidi. Hello, so- how are you? I'm Heidi Clark. How are you? Hi, Heidi. So, Heidi, tell us what you do. I write for Fleshbot.com, which is a website. I write as Holly Kingstown there. Um, I write about the adult entertainment industry, porn in general, and adult entertainment as a whole. I've been in the adult industry since 1999. Started as a live nude girl working at peep shows in Seattle. Um, oh, awesome. have, <laughs> thank you. Was the editor of uh, Buttman Magazine, the largest hardcore magazine and while it was still in existence when magazines still made money. What is that? Paper? <laughs> Yeah, it was on paper, and people yeah. like you know would throw it out when they were done with it. I know, crazy. Insane. You found crazy. Under your dad's car seat. Oh, under your dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, from there, worked for AVN, which is the number one trade magazine for the adult entertainment industry. Um, I've also directed movies, and I watch and write about a whole lot of porn for a living, and have for a very long time. So I would yeah, definitely you. consider you an expert. 
I would, the, I would, the porn yeah, I like that. You know, I think so. I, I would say that I am. I mean, I've spent enough time, you know, my glasses prescription tell me that for sure. <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen a lot. Do you so. have an anti-fog screen on your glasses? You know, every uh, every once in a while, it's no, it's mostly just me to take a big deep breath and a sigh, wiping <laughs> them off, and deciding to go ahead and like go ahead for another thirty minutes. Yeah, I bet there's more sighing than anything. <laughs> if you question people's life choices, it's like, did you really want to swallow that? All right, <laughs> you know, I probably wouldn't have done that, but you know what? You only live once and live the dream. Go there you. you. Go. So we've been talking about <laughs> snuff films. And, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and of course, it's still around today, you know, that idea that snuff films are that the last place where the washed up porn star goes and that the big bad (laughs) porn industry is out to just have this secret ring of snuff filmmakers. Right. And like, Lovelace testified before the attorney general that snuff films were where old washed up porn stars went to die. Literally <laughs> on the record before the United States government, this woman says this. So yeah, where would you like me to start with debunking this? Because I, I, there's a lot of places to places to go. I, I the first place I'm going to start is okay. Number one, where would our milfs come from <laughs> if we were go. killing them all? Good point. <laughs> okay, number one, they would not because they would not exist. A lot of porn stars who have been around since I would say the 90s, the early 2000s, are currently working as milfs in our industry. So basically, if you were you know killing them all off, you wouldn't have you know, Mills, number one. Number two, Linda Lovelace. Linda Lovelace, she was a troubled soul. Linda Lovelace had a really hard row in life. She was involved with Chuck Trainer, who I did not meet personally, but I do know people who knew him while he was alive. A completely manipulative human being could, could make anybody do just about anything. Is he kind of the example of that evil porn yeah. industry yep. guy? Yep. Like yep. If, if there was an archetype, yep. 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 He was the archetype of that whole terrible human being who is what they call in the industry a suitcase pimp meaning he will pull your suitcase around and take your money while you do these scenes he was a terrifically abusive man so she was in a in a really bad way while she was in the industry and is that the industry's fault absolutely not they met long before porn he kind of manipulated her into it add to that a history of drug abuse. I mean, it, then you, you basically start saying whatever you want to say to get yourself out of that situation. And a lot of people used her for her ability to do that. And that's terrible and really sad. I've never felt good about the fact that any of that happened to her. And I don't think anyone in the industry does. So Linda basically, you know, told this whole story and went on Donahue and had Gloria Stein on her speed dial for five minutes until Gloria figured out that she'd basically say whatever they wanted her to say. And then they realized that she was just saying all kinds of crazy shit and stopped using her for that purpose. Because that didn't continue. She didn't continue to beat that drum, if you notice. It dropped off. So then what happens is, because she burned everyone in her life between the drug problem and the lies about the adult industry, she was in a position where she couldn't get anything other than a telemarketing job towards the end of her life. And she was working at this telemarketing job and she got a one last gig. She was offered and she did uh, do a set for Hustler's Leg Fetish magazine and where she basically kind of recanted part of what she said. And then she basically like two years after that, she, she, she died and she never really undid the damage of that testimony. And, you know, it, it's unfortunate. No one wants anyone to not have a good time. There's nothing attractive or pretty about a miserable woman on camera. No one wants to see that because it's like the whole point of the movies is to see people having pleasure. Now, there are the other kind of movies where it's like, oh, my God, that hurts. Oh, my God, I hate that. 
I've never seen a snuff film. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anyone murdered. I've never seen anything like that. And I have to say the liability for any studio who is going to shoot an actual death. I mean, there's no way any could afford to do that. (laughs) There's no, there's no everything you have on the line. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, for what, for, for one movie, for one movie, there's no way, there's no way that could happen. It's just not, it's not feasible. It's not, it's not true. (laughs) And and it's certainly, it it is an example of wanting a boogeyman. Mm -hmm. And I understand wanting a boogeyman because there's something really kind of sexy about, oh my God, it's so dangerous. So I I get the appeal of that and I get the need for that. I mean, that's why people watch horror movies all the time because they want to be scared. And I understand wanting to be scared while something sexy is going on because it's like, there's that, that element of risk. And that's, you know, where a lot of the BDSM fetish comes from is the desire for some fear while the sex is happening. What I wonder is that, is this legend still like creeping around? Like, do you hear people on set or like, no, no, no talking about it? No, no, you no, you really don't. The only thing I've ever heard is, you know, I've heard like, you'll hear that a guy's rough or I've heard people say that, okay, you're, that you're going to get uh, some kind of disease on a set. That's something that is used to scare people a lot is that diseases are out there. And that's not, how that works. I wonder if the legend of the snuff film started dying down around the time people became more cognizant of AIDS. Like if you look at the timeline, it almost works out. It does actually. I think that because the, the actual real risk of death happened and because, you know, I mean, there was John Holmes, who is one of the first male performers who came down with the disease. He was basically the first real casualty of, of AIDS on the straight end of things. And he went to Europe and worked knowing he was HIV positive. The last one was in the mid-2000s with a male performer named Darren James. Darren James went to Brazil with a production company and shot some movies. Well, one of the performers in Brazil bought an HIV test, which you can do. You apparently can buy a test that says you're clean of everything for around $50 American. She gave one of the men the disease, Darren, and the other guy managed to not get the disease by for whatever reason because luck, because yeah. luck, yeah. Dumb and luck. and he came back to the United States because he and he had seen tests, you know. So he said, okay, you know, I'm fine. Worked with two more performers and basically infected two other women, and and that was the only time that that's happened like that because the testing standards are so stringent here no one in the united states works with a test that is over two weeks old what kind of governing body is organized throughout the porn industry like is there i know there's not like a ratings code or anything like that but how is that sort of enforced is it just the standard of care or it's done by performers themselves there is an organization called the adult performers action committee which is run through the free speech coalition where performers kind of work together to keep these rules kind of consistent but you also have the right on any set to say, I'm not going to do that. And so I'm guessing there's a lot of kind of word of mouth going around and, oh, and things yes. like that. Yeah, there's a whole lot of self-policing in adult. And it's done that way because it's your body. You should self-police it. You shouldn't let the government do that for right. you. But you know, you bring that up and you brought up Prop 60. Um, Prop 60 was created by an organization called AIDS, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, which sounds really wonderful, right? And they wanted to make yes. it so cons were mandatory in porn, right? Which sounds like a really good idea, except that in porn, number one, no one's getting sick, or if they are getting sick, it's from stuff that's happening offset. You are safer having sex on any adult set because everybody there is tested. You walk into any bar in this country, no one's going to have a test that's current. Right. But what's interesting to me is what was buried away in the Prop 60 legislation. Oh, yeah. They did a lot of terrible things. I mean, first off, there was the plan to create this 
AIDS czar, porn, a, porn AIDS condom czar, which the... Well, the, I like the title. Yes, I know. Who would want to be a czar? Have a crown? It's very sexy. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it had a million dollar salary built into it that was going to be paid for by the people of the state of California. And it was, uh, it basically enabled the average citizen to uh, sue any porn star or any porn company that worked without condoms. They would get a cut. Yeah, you get a cut. You get a cut of a lawsuit. No, you would get a cut. If I was like, hey, I saw Naked Willie and I'm calling to report it, they'd be like, thank you so much, citizen. Here's your money. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but it would also enable you, like, let's say you were a stalker of, you know, Candy Thunderpants, your favorite porn star, right? Mm -hmm. So Candy Thunderpants, because you would sue them, you would get all the personal contact info on Candy that you would ever need. Oh, right, right. Yeah, and there are porn stars. Yeah, so it's basically you totally enable all this this violation of a person's privacy it's interesting because it's like with this prop 60 stuff you see all of this kind of scare tactics just mm-hmm. come up again that yeah, were used yeah. in the 70s it is and it is it is built on public's misconception about what actually happens on a porn set and what happens on a porn set is basically what happens on any set of any production which is they do stuff that you wouldn't normally do in real life over and over again <laughs> in front of a camera until the director gets the shot he wants. So would you say that the closest thing that could be considered a snuff film would be some of those scenes kind of where people were almost in a way purposefully infected with HIV? The only thing I've ever seen this close to a snuff scene would be, for example, the Darren James scene. So when I looked at the release schedule for that company who sent those people to Brazil and I saw a scene with those three players in it, it, kind of took my breath away because I realized it's like, this could be it. This could be the scene. This is the closest thing. And I didn't watch the scene because it's like, I don't, I don't really want to see that. I don't think that's hot. Now it doesn't say anywhere on the movie that that's what it is, but it's not used in the marketing, but two plus two still equals four. But again, I can't prove that it actually was the scene, but it's hard to believe that it wasn't. It's pretty disgusting that the company put it out. That's the closest thing I've ever seen to a snuff movie. The industry is about pleasure. It's about people getting off. (laughs) And there is nothing sexy about murdering a human being. So under the industry umbrella, if you kind of have amateur and you have sort of industry porn, do you also have a different umbrella for like kink and fetish porn? Or is that just all part of the industry like is it like oh, well, well yeah. those girls only do that or oh they're definitely girls who specialize in fetish work they there are performers that's that's their bread and butter is making weird movies for people who like weird things which is awesome because you know i i'm weird and everyone's got their own weirdness so it's kind of cool that there's a whole subset built into all kinds of different things now something about the performances is that things are designed to look harder than they necessarily are. And that's where I think a lot of the violence concerns can kind of come in because Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't actually shooting anybody. <laughs> He's not? <laughs> no. And it turns out that, you know, childhood. when you... I'm so sorry to break that to you. everyone's but, childhood. It's, it's, it's yeah, our turn. But when, you, but when you see a girl who's screaming for dear life, it's basically just the same as if she were in a Freddy Krueger movie. She is amplifying her response to make it so that the sense of urgency or whatever kind of fear, interest, titillation, whatever, it's all there. She's so truly can, acting. 
Yes, she is acting. There is actually what? acting on porn sets. It's not just people fucking for fun. They're you can't actually enjoy yourself for that long. You can, you can. Now there are people who do. Like I, you know, they make sure that there's orgasms built in there. That makes me happy. <laughs> Pleasure is built in. It is supposed to be fun. It is supposed to look great. Now, when it's not supposed to look great, you are dealing with male professionals who know how to put their hand on a girl or slap a girl's butt or make something so that it looks a lot more extreme than it is. That's part of being an actor. They can make it look like they're hurting a girl and not make a bruise, not make a mark. That's part of the whole performance aspect. And I think a lot of people, because their sex lives are so real to them, they assume that everything they see is exactly as it is. What you see on screen isn't necessarily what people are feeling. There is a whole aspect of performance that I think people forget about because they're so wrapped up in their own heads when they're watching this stuff, which is what people want for you to do. The yeah, people kind of the this, yeah, yeah, the people who make this stuff want you to enjoy it. They want you to be immersed in it. They want you to enter this world where beautiful people have great sex. They want you to see that. But that doesn't mean that everything you see there is real. Under under the umbrella of kink. Yes. Are there movies that aim to like simulate snuff? Like are there any movies where they're like Well, not really murder so much as like kidnapping. Like there'll be like abduction themed stuff. Yeah. Or right. stuff where hostage themed stuff. Or stuff where there is a lack of consent implied. But that's yeah. not necessarily what happens because if you watch any of the stuff before or after the scene, every company pretty much has a disclaimer on it because they don't want to go to court. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's that whole like not wanting to go to prison thing. Huge motivating yeah. factor. Yes. Chances are if it looks like it's non-consensual, it's looking like it's non-consensual and that's about it. But there's really not any kind of actual even fake porn snuff films or at least especially not put out by the industry. no no they don't there's really not anything that that is about simulating death now lack of consent sure that could simulate it all the time and it's there for people to kind of work their own issues out right. but it's always done with consent do you hear like dark web rumors oh yeah oh of course you do yeah i mean i hear that stuff but at the same time it's like well i hear rumors about all kinds of shit yeah <laughs> I didn't know if it was pervasive. Like it was something that you, hear you know, all the time. Sex trafficking is a very different thing than than what's going on in the adult industry. Yeah. Um, now the stuff that happens in hotel rooms with people who aren't consenting that has nothing to do with adult. That is awful, and I, I sex trafficking is a terrible thing that needs to be addressed. But it certainly probably isn't going to be anytime soon. A lot of times, like I said, it's based on people's own hangups and fears. It's not about reality. We want to thank Heidi for coming on to the show, and you can check out more of her stuff. Of course, not at work. Wouldn't recommend that. At fleshbot.com. Well, and so Gloria Simon was still kind of pushing this idea for a long time after it had really gone out of favor. You know, 70s and 80s, this was the thing. Objectification of women. Porn is an example. It's a thing we can point to. And she says in her book from 1995, oh, Gloria, called Outrageous Acts, through snuff movies in which real women are eviscerated and finally killed, have been driven underground, in part because graves of many murdered women were discovered around the shack of just one filmmaker in California. Movies that simulate these torture murders of women are still going strong. 
What filmmaker is she talking about? I don't know, Murderpedia Brain. What filmmaker is she talking about? I don't know any mainstream or pornographic filmmaker that actually killed women and placed them around their home. Because there was not. Oh. This was an amateur filmmaker. Oh, 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 I know, I know, I know. I'm on board. I'm on board. I know it. I know it. Did your Murderpedia Brain just click? Yeah, when you said amateur. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I have an answer for you. I know exactly who she was talking about. And... I promise I won't do this often, guys, but I'm about to tell you why Gloria Steinem's wrong. You're going to lose your feminist badge. No! No, I won't. It's like a little uterus pin. (laughs) It's a badge badge. Get your shit together. Let's go. 1985. Mother Gloria is speaking of Leonard Lake and Charles Ng. Who are these pornographers? These pornographers are essentially what the MRA wants to be when they grow up. The NRA? No, they probably were members of the NRA. No, the MRA. Like, these guys would be the ultimate internet trolls. Had they only had the internet, 25 people might still be alive. You know, there's a lot of talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably another episode. That's another episode. Sublimate the urges. Who said that? Freud. Oh my god, we weren't going to talk about Freud this episode. We did it! We did it! So, in rural Calaveras County, which sounds like the beginning of a murder ballad, in California in 1985, a man named Leonard Lake was picked up by police when his unusually muscular Asian-American accomplice fled on foot after stealing a $75 vice grip from a hardware store. It sounds like the start of a porn. Yeah, it does. And so... He was unusually masculine. That's like... He hid the vice grip in his pants. Dude, they call him that all the time. And I don't know if you've seen Charles Ng, but I'm like, dude. <laughs> they search the car because they see him throw the vice grip in the car before he flees. When they do, they find an illegally modified weapon. So Leonard Lake comes out in all of his disheveled, like, homeless chic glory. Derelict. Ooh, blue steel. He gives him his best blue steel and hands him a receipt for the vice grip. He's trying really hard to get out of it. But they've already noticed the illegal modifications to this weapon. And so he gets in the back of the car and he tells him that the man's name is Charles Ng. So immediately rats him out. They're taking him into the station to question him about this weapon. They get there and he's like, I need to write a statement. May I please have some paper, a pencil, and a glass of water in a moment alone? And they say, sure, buddy. Wow. He's sure taking the shoplifting charge very seriously that was easy yeah and so they come back and find him convulsing on the floor what yes and rush him to the hospital and find out that he has taken cyanide like a fucking nazi did he have a false tooth he did he did oh my god he did yes are you kidding me no i'm serious well he said he did and all of his journals he claimed to have had i mean he had cyanide. We know he had cyanide. Maybe it was in his pocket. I don't know. No. It was definitely his tooth. Definitely a false tooth. <laughs> I'm just putting on the record there. So you remember how he asked for the paper? Yeah. He wrote his confession. No, he didn't. What did he write? He wrote a note to his ex-wife, Cricket. That's sweet. At the end, it said, <sighs> I love you, Mom, Patty, and all. Sorry for all the trouble. Love, Leonard. Okay. Sorry for all the trouble. And in the note, he mentioned true freedom. He said, you know, I have true freedom now. And repeatedly throughout his life, he had said things like, the United States government doesn't know how to deal with a man who's truly free, who does not fear death. Mm, He sounds like this (laughs) crazy right-wing nutjob survivalist. Yes, 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 exactly. 
Oh. Did he have like a compound? Yes. Oh. Yes. Yes. Oh. Okay. Wait, keep going. I'm just, keep I'm keep just guessing. No. Back. No, no, no. Keep guessing. What else do you think he did? I'm guessing he had military training. He did. He did. He was uh he was an ex-marine and he was disenfranchised. He was discharged when some psych stuff came up and the military said, "Oh, no thank you, Leonard." And send him home. You're enjoying killing people way too much. He never killed people. Never saw combat. Oh, really? Okay. Most interestingly enough, most serial killers who did military service never saw combat. Maybe they should have. (laughs) (laughs) Sublimate those urges. Freud again? Again we get Freud. So, Lake is an interesting guy. He's a burly guy. Big guy. Big bearded burly man. Is he unusually muscular? No, he's not. So he had a lifelong preoccupation with erotic photos. He would have these albums of like... Who thinks he had a copy of Front Page Detectives? I'm going to guess he did. I'm going to... Me. I do. I'm the one. But he would have these albums, like family albums, the same things that your grandmother has that you would pull out at Thanksgiving to see pictures of your aunt when she was a little girl and giggle, full of like... Hardcore bondage nudies, and he would take them out just ad nauseum. Okay, I mean, no problem with that. People got sick of seeing him, though. He'd be like, hi, my name's Lenny. Want to see my nudes? It was like his his segue. Like He'd be like, can you believe what's going on in Washington? He'd be like, I can't want to see my nudes. Like, it was very aggressive. Aggressive showing of these photos. Were they ones he had taken? Yes. Oh, okay. He also had a lifelong obsession with a book called The Collector, which is a classic novel that was written in 1963. And the book focuses on a, you want to guess? Collector. Yes. What does he collect? Butterflies. So not people. Also people. What? Person. Just one. There's a woman he's in love with who's a young art student. He knows that she will never love him, but he decides that he must possess her. So he captures her with his butterfly net? Basically. So he brings Miranda home. Her name is Miranda. And he puts her in a bunker. The middle part of the novel is told from her point of view. And it's like her journals and stuff. It reveals that she never loves him. And he's sure that if he just keeps her away from everyone else, she will eventually love him. But she doesn't. She starves to death and dies. And when he discovers her body, he's distraught. But then he finds her journals and he reads that she never loved him. And he decides, you know what? She wasn't the right one for me. I just need to go get another girl. And that's how the book ends. Oh, I kind of want to read it. <laughs> I know. It sounds excellent. It's actually like a very well-regarded piece of literature. Sorry, what about our um, unusually muscular Asian guy? But one might wonder how an unusually muscular Asian male meets up with a right-wing survivalist. And the answer is he was a fugitive. He had also been involved in the Marines. Now, he was born in Hong Kong. He was not born in America, but he was sent here after he had some disciplinary problems as a child to live with family in San Francisco. And he falsified his birth certificate in order to become a Marine. Good start. Right? When I heard that he was an immigrant who had been in the military, I was like, oh my God, this is so going to be... Like, when I Google this, it's going to come up with nothing but blogs about how the Dream Act was a bad idea. But good news, he just lied. (laughs) So, he met Charles Ng while he was on the lam after stealing some weapons from the military while he was a Marine. And he was actually a wanted fugitive. And they kind of bonded over their love of not being in mainstream society, liking guns, and being violent dickbags. Wonderful. So what did these super best friends do? 
Super best friends having adventures. They built a bunker, as you do. Wonderful. When you live in rural California in the mountains, they got a backhoe and they dug out some dirt and they built a concrete fallout shelter, basically. So it was a freestanding building that kind of just looked like a, a shed that would be on a property like that where you keep your tools and things for living off the land. The interesting part about this bunker in particular was that half of it was concealed underground. The front part stuck out. You could see it. Back part hidden. Business in the front, party in the back. This oh, is the no. mullet of bunkers. No, no just no. <laughs> this is a I m- could just guess what this bunker is used for. I'm saying no. It's a, it's a mullet bunker. Now, the most impressive piece of construction was a Batcave-esque type entrance from the Adam West era. Do they go down fireman's poles? It's not that good. Don't get greedy. So, hidden behind three false shelves on a false wall, there was a small corridor, which led to a three-by-six cell with a lock on the outside. In the cell, there was a wooden cot, a five-gallon bucket near a nice, neat little roll of toilet paper mounted on the wall. Replace the roll, you animal. A shelf, which had all the necessary toiletries. Instruments of torture? Toiletries, so they could keep nice, look pretty. And a two-way mirror. You might ask yourself, what is on the other side of this two-way mirror? And you might be shocked and horrified to learn that it was a viewing gallery with a chair and a pair of night vision goggles. Why were there night vision goggles? Because he would turn off all the lights and watch this person who was being kept in the cell hypothetically in the dark. Horrified, terrified, alone, taken away from everything they know and love, clamoring around, trying to figure out if there's any way out, and just enjoy it. So, while I don't want to say this is actually so, I know when you bring this terrible shit on the show, your murdery murder crap. I bring it here. We're talking about snuff films, okay? There was no way it was not like I'm talking about the history of film. Uh, <laughs> oh, you cinephile. I know you're going to tell me that they actually did keep people captive. You're right. I am. We know for sure and for certain that at least two women were kept captive in the little holding cell behind the bat cave door for weeks, if not months. They were called the M ladies. Why? Because they were part of Operation Miranda. Well, like, like Sex in the City? Yes. They went for the thinky types. You know, the professionals. It's not that bright. So you remember the book I mentioned earlier? The Collector. You remember the female character's name? Butterfly. Miranda. Oh, right. Madam Miranda Butterfly. God, say her whole name. Show some respect. So Leonard, after 20 years of fantasizing about this book and having this really weird right-wing military bent, decided that this obviously needed an operation. But he would give everything operations. Like, he had Operation Fish at one point. But that's a different story. But Operation Miranda was this... This idea about keeping people as slaves. And we know this because when police were searching his property after his suicide, after finding that his car was associated with a missing person, after finding that the gun in his car was registered to a missing person, after finding the driver's license of a different missing person in his car, after finding blood and bullet holes in said car. After him cracking his false tooth and dying of cyanide. Yeah, after all that, when they went to search his property, they found buried in the ground out front of the concrete torture bunker a five-gallon paint drum containing his journals, 
a manifesto tape and a tape called M Ladies. This is a videotape? Oh, it's a videotape. Huh. Huh. So they were acquainted with things like Leonard saying, I believe I can construct a holding cell so stark and empty that I can fairly quickly and easily condition a young woman to cooperate with me fully. Oh, he was in his right mind. He was. He was. And he would talk explicitly about how much he enjoyed sex and he wanted women to be off-the-shelf sex partners. What does that even mean? I think it's a really weird term. People said that it's something people would say about slavery, like off-the-shelf help. Like you just go buy them and they're ready to do whatever you need them to do. And you can just put them back on the shelf when you're done. That seems to be key for Leonard. Put them back in the bunker. Yes. And he talks about like having a woman that will never tell him no. Then he says, it will be interesting to see how far these tapes and I go. What tapes? These tapes, which had a label on them, literally saying the M ladies tape. On the M ladies tape, there is the psychological torture and obvious imprisonment of two women. And sexual assault. What I saw can, the video. What I consider sexual assault, yes. But there is not, like, when you say that, sometimes people are using it as a euphemism for rape. And there is no evidence of that. It is just purely sexual degradation. Right. The clips we saw had her, like, tearing the clothes. Cutting, cutting them. Yeah, cutting, cutting the them with scissors. Off. It's gross and it's terrible. What is on these tapes? It's very incriminating. And it seems that there was a very necessary step conducted before this crime spree that Operation Miranda could commence. And that is actually obtaining the AV equipment in order to capture said crime spree and operation on film. So did they just steal it from the store like they were stealing the vice grip? (laughs) You would think. I hadn't thought of that. That would have worked better, which is what they should would have said had you said that to them. No, they found an ad for this guy named Dubs. That was renting out AV equipment in San Francisco. And they drove down to see about renting this AV equipment. And then they absconded with it. And the entire family that had been living in the home where said AV equipment was kept. And that's actually how they linked them to the disappearance of mother, father, and child. So the whole family? Whole family. They found the camcorder at the home of Leonard Lake and it had the same serial number as the one that was being rented out because Mr. Dubs was a smart cookie and he kept a very thorough log of all of the products that he rented out in case anyone ever stole them. I think someone stole them. I think they did too. So the child in that incident was under two years old and no one knows what happened to them. They have never found any evidence. Interestingly, Mother Dubs, Deborah, was not shown on the M Ladies tape, and she was exactly their type. So they only found two specific women on the tapes. Right, and their names were Kathy Allen and Brenda O'Connor. Deborah would have been exactly the kind of woman they'd gone after or would go after. And so I find that really interesting. Now, one thing you have to realize about this entire case is that there was a moment when it's possible that the crime scene could have been compromised in an epic way. How's that? So they went to speak with Leonard's mother after he took his cyanide while he was brain dead in the hospital. And when they spoke to Leonard's mother, they were shocked to find his ex-wife Cricket at her home. 
they knew who she was because they'd found an electric bill in her name in the car with the vice grip, etc. And they found out that Leonard had been living in a cabin that she owned in Calaveras County. And they said, hey, can you take us up there? And she's like, oh, I'm kind of busy. And at the time, they didn't know what was looming. They didn't know about the bunker, the torture cell. They didn't know that they had anything to do with really any specific disappearances. They were, right. This is all conjecture. They just had their suspicions. Right. It was weird. It was weird that this guy got brought in for shoplifting and took cyanide. Weird. And so they had the cops in Calaveras County kind of keep an eye on the place, but they couldn't like actually put someone on the property because it was obviously gated off like the apocalypse was coming because Leonard Lake was a crazy paranoid motherfucker. There were only 38 cops in Calaveras County at the time. One of them who'd been doing a drive-by did report that he saw a car that matched the description of the ex-wife Cricket's car going onto the property. And Leonard Lake's Mother later said that she and Cricket did remove a number of things from the cabin, including a box of videotapes. That were never seen again? That were never seen again. Hmm. Hmm. Now, the reason Leonard Lake's mother probably came forward with this information later is because it was discovered that Leonard Lake murdered his little brother, Donnie. Oh, good. In order to steal his ID. He would often kill big burly men with beards in order to steal their identity. Oh, wow. You're on. The list. I know. <laughs> burly? You're ish I just a, consider myself more otter-like. <laughs> you are more of an otter than a bear. But I'm just saying, he'd be like, it's an old picture. I don't think that I... I've eaten some Twinkies. <laughs> I don't think that I... It's a face shot. I don't think that I'm unusually muscular. You're no Charles Ng, let's be clear. No. In the process of going through all of the videotapes that were confiscated from Laird Lake's bunker cabin and Charles Ng's San Francisco apartment, because he was a swinging dude and needed to keep his own flat, they discovered more tapes and they, of course, watched through all of them. Because after you see tapes of women being psychologically and sexually abused with the perpetrators on camera, you're like, maybe there are more. And so they found one tape that was labeled Taboo, which seemed to be just a movie tape from TV. As one of the investigators went to rewind it, because they had not been kind and rewinded. Oh, these guys are bastards. It actually just stopped on a frame that appeared to be two bodies wrapped in sleeping bags in rigor in a wheelbarrow. And they later found those same two bodies wrapped in the same sleeping bags on the property. So you can see how in this, there's one frame of this, like one frame of victims' bodies in a wheelbarrow that was preserved that was found almost by accident, it would have been very hard to find on purpose on this one videotape that's confiscated from Ng's apartment. It's been taped over what else was on that tape. You can see how, you know, there was another woman who fit the profile abducted by these men. There's no video of her. What happened to that tape? What was on the tapes that Mother Lake took? Mother Lake, what did she take? It's a nursery rhyme. Oh, God. But you can see why the idea... That these crazy people had bodies buried all around their house and snuff films sold on the black market. Oh, and added to the fact that Leonard Lake had sold homemade sex tapes on a small market scale before he started killing people. You can see where that idea would come from. I mean, they're associated with 25 disappearances. I mean, but Lake died. We know that. Right. Yeah. So like what a Nazi bastard. Right. What happened to our unusually masculine Asian guy? Well, he fled to Canada for a bit. Good call. He uh, lived in a little fallout in the woods for a bit, and he was caught. I'm just just guess. What's the stupidest thing you could possibly do to get caught after getting caught? 
Pornography. Oh, no. Come on. Shoplifting. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> yes. He was shoplifting and he was caught by a security guard and he pulled a gun and he shot the security guard in the hand and he was arrested and Canada would not extradite him until he served his full sentence for shoplifting. What's that, like three weeks? Oh, the, with the shooting of the security guard. It's a bit more, a bit longer. Four weeks? It was, it was four years. Oh, okay. So he was in prison in Canada for four years and then they... Had an extradition trial and brought him back to the U.S. And thus began the Charles Ng legal saga of forever. He exploited the legal system in so many ways. He fired seven different attorneys. He went through like four different judges. He had three different trial start dates. He used everything he could think of. He complained about the food. He complained about the travel. Everything was making him sick. He couldn't sleep because he was so worried about his terrible attorneys. He had to wear a shock belt in court because he kept having violent outbursts at the judge and cursing at him. So he was like a dog? They had a shock collar? Yes. It was a belt, though, which is so much worse. Is it? I think so. Depends. I imagine it went between his legs, but I don't know why. Like a jock strap. Uh. I don't think so. (laughs) It's worth it. Middle image is worth it. So, of course, the M ladies tape played predominantly in the prosecution of Charles Ng. He was brought into court and charged with 12 murders. The trial concluded in 19... Guess. 1999? Why'd you guess that? It's going to party like it's 1999. You're right, but you (laughs) shouldn't be. This started in 85... This is too long. This yeah, but you've got the four years who's in Canada. Yeah, okay, fair. I spoiled it a little. But yes, it was the second most costly prosecution of any person or group in California. What's the most costly? The McManus preschool trial. Oh. You remember that one? I do. Chuck Norris, witches, underground tunnels. See episode three. Three? Maybe. Three. I you think know. anyway? Ones. <laughs> it was it was Satan stuff. But it was dismissed eventually, but it was more expensive than OJ. This trial and there's video evidence. His defense team put on a hell of a defense. Like listening to it, reading about it, they did a hell of a job. But at the last minute, against the advice of his attorneys, Ing takes the stand. Wise move. Stupid. This is another theme we're gonna have tonight. Stupid motherfuckers. Stupid. And so he gets up there and he, of course, has to be examined by the prosecution and they talk about the tapes. And that is probably what ends up doing him in because there was, they were allowed to confront him about specific details of confessions he'd made in jail that people would not have had any way of knowing from like even trial transcripts. And he really just didn't do himself any favors. Also, before I leave this topic, I must tell you, Ing drew cartoons about murder. And you can see them online. Do not Google them. No, you have to Google them. Don't Do listen. Don't listen. Don't listen. Don't he do does it. racist caricatures of himself. Nice. Does he have buck teeth? He does. No. And he's wearing a chef hat and cooking babies in a wok. Aww. And his chef hat, do you know what it says on his chef hat? What does it say? Slant. No. It's so bad. It's so bad. And the caption for the cartoon I've just described in which Charles Ng is cooking a baby in a walk while looking like a racist caricature from World War II, not the Japanese ones, is captioned, Mommy cry, daddy die, baby fry. Lovely. And so I know he was tried for 12 people, you said. Mm-hmm. He was convicted for 11. 
11. They um, deadlocked on one count. But they were associated with more than that. 25 are associated. Lake had some individual stuff before him. Yeah, and that did include the two families, the Dubs family, which I mentioned earlier, and Brenda O'Connor, who had a small child who was about 16 months old at the time that she and her husband and child were abducted from their home nearby Lake's cabin. Yeah, no one knows what happens to the kids. Lonnie was one of the bodies they found in the sleeping bag. Brenda's on the tapes. So I'm feeling like mommy cry, daddy die, baby fries, not that far off. So this is definitely a extremely disturbing case with some really screwed up people. And they videotaped this. They videotaped this. A lot of people say, oh, of course this is real because we have serial killers everywhere. I'm sure some of these people are videotaping it. I'm sure they are too, but that is not the case, and at least the tape that they found in the Ingham Lake case. The best defense that the defense attorneys had was the video doesn't actually show murder. Right. You can't say, oh, we murdered them. Like, that's a, that's from trial transcripts in court, what his defense attorney said in closing arguments. This does not show murder. It's not like a, oh, well, you haven't seen the whole thing. Conspiracy nut job you'd get on Reddit. That's true. It just didn't show murder. Okay, so, like, these videos are horrible. So disturbing. Like, I, I've avoided this case. It's fit on some other episodes we wanted to do. And I've always been like, yeah, I could talk about legging, but I really don't want to. But we couldn't do snuff and not talk about it. Because it's the case that's cited. Because there are video tapes. Right. But, but not I, of murder. Not of murder. But what is shown, I haven't wanted to look at. It's haunting and upsetting, but there is no blood, gore, like beating, breaking limbs, torture. Unfortunately, it would probably be rated PG-13 if it was shown in theaters. No, and that's a good point. Because a lot of people talk nowadays about the state of horror films and there are some excellent horror films being made i mean baba duke baba duke the witch black philip i think the conjuring is really good i thought it was good too and i'll good. fight people who say it's not it was, it was good. real good yeah i mean the warrants i mean demons yes. <laughs> But you could think of some other horror movies that are being made that are frequently cited as being close to a snuff film. Torture porn. Yeah. So what are some things you think of? Hostile. Yeah. Saw. It's a human centipede. Oh, that's, yeah. That's gnarly. Uh, yeah. I've not seen it. I won't watch it. I've seen clips. I didn't want to. Yeah. I still haven't seen Two Girls, One Cup. Don't want to. Don't want to. Don't have to. Or like Grindhouse. Yeah, but that's just fun. <laughs> And so this idea, something like Grindhouse and these other movies, play on that idea of snuff films, play on that idea of this kind of excessive violence. And this is all something that's kind of called an exploitation film. I mean, I know what exploitation is, but I also know how it was used, you know, when we were bringing people over from, you know, when we were bringing the pygmies over for the world fair or whatever. Like we had the exploitation area is what it was called. So like. Was it really? Yes. Terrible. I know. It was terrible. So, I mean, exploitation films. So, just as an example of something people have probably heard of, something like Grindhouse, which was done by Quentin Tarantino. Who? Kidding. Kidding. Just joke. Just joke. It was a play on these old exploitation films, and these were movies that were kind of B-films, mm-hmm. the low-budget done, and they exploited, exploited lurid subject matters- be anything about anything 
but you know, usually incorporated sex and violence, drug use, nudity, freaks, gore, the bizarre, rebellion, mayhem in general. So like what Alex was watching in A Clockwork Orange. Yeah, so Clockwork Orange is a great example of a high art form of an exploitation film. And there are a few examples of that. And a lot of the European films that came over as kind of exploitation films were considered more high art in their uh. origin countries. But the idea of an exploitation film, which you're right, you talk about like exploiting things. It was just kind of exploiting those ideas of taboos. And they started in the 1920s. And they were these theatrical movies that broke from the studio system. Broke, I love, I love pre-code. <laughs> love pre-code. Broke from the Hayes Code. Yeah. Which was... A uh, shit show. A moral code instituted by the Hollywood elite. The Hollywood elite. Yeah, as the they were watching their snuff films and smoking their big cigars. Kind of in the wake of the Fatty Arbuckle scandal and the murder of William Desmond Taylor. We'll let you Google that one. Yeah. <laughs> that'll be an episode. <laughs> Sorry to keep doing that today, guys. We got to make so many pop culture references. So as the studio system began to fall, these subject matters that were used in the early exploitation films, which could include ideas of like... Ultraviolence? I mean, no, not the early ones. Not the early ones. It could, ta- it could be stuff that you wouldn't think of as an exploitation film, like Reefer Madness is an exploitation film. Like where they tell people never to smoke weed or you die. Smoke weed, you have sex, you die. But these ideas began to be reincorporated in the 1950s, where they started to film, like, burlesque shows. They would have nudist films. Oh, that sounds enlightened. Where they would film these nudist colonies, quotes, Mm. nudist colonies. Mm -hmm. And there was even a movie called The Garden of Eden that came out in 1955. It became this prolonged court case. And eventually, the ruling was that nudity in itself is neither erotic or obscene. I agree with that. I don't know. I think it's an interesting idea, but it's from that long ago. They were even able to say, like, "Mm, even though you're naked, it's not necessarily mean sex. Right. And it's like great Supreme Court quote, what is obscenity? I don't know, but I know it when I see it. Right. (laughs) Like the Statue of Justice that Rumsfeld had covered because he didn't want want boobs behind his face. Yes, exactly like that. But then they started making movies called Nudie Cuties. Oh, God, that's ridiculous. No, they didn't. Stop it. Stop it. It sounds like a My Little Pony. I know what My Little Pony you're watching. I'm Nudie Cutie. And these were just films of naked women kind of just lounging around. All right. Like, you know, like half the internet now? I don't think they're just lounging on the internet. There's lounging. You can, whatever you want to do or see in your life, you can see attractive naked women do it. That's true. That is very true. Like cooking, <laughs> reading. Cooking? I'm sure they're naked cooking. Google it. I oh bet you $500 if there's a naked cooking show. Like an actual good naked cooking show? I'd be, I'd be all about that. <laughs> As it started to gain a cultural foothold, you really had the proliferation of exploitation films. And this is where you get those grindhouse theaters, which really took off in the 60s and 70s. It sounds like an exploitation film is like something that exists for the sake of existing. No, it is. Sake of shocking, almost. Of titillating. Okay. So, I didn't know this. 
beforehand. And I what? Know, I know a lot about. I know. I know a lot about film history, and the grindhouse. The term comes from these defunct burlesque theaters that are now like kind of gone out of business, and they started using them as these B movie theaters, showing these exploitation films. And so they it were was like the old bump and grind, bump and grind, dancing and striptease places. Shut up! It could have just as easily been called like cooch films. Unfortunately, it's not. <laughs> oh, no. So they start showing all of these exploitation films. And, you know, one of the first ones is in 1963 called Blood Feast. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a grindhouse movie. And it showed a series of bizarre murders of women that emphasized kind of the special effects and mutilation. So they were split up into different categories. And this is early on in the exploitation idea. They were called ghoulies ghoulies yeah and they were the kind of really gore films and they also had roughies that had some nudity a little bit of drama and some like action scenes so it was like a soft going porn with a storyline and some fighting little white fighting little white fighting a little bad punching uh like the gore i imagine it's much like the gore fight in star trek yes and then you had kinkies okay Okay. Which were kind of soft core. You know, none of this was hardcore sex. That'd be porn. That'd be yeah, pornography. Just, so yeah. it's kind of soft core. You'd see some boobs. There'd be S&M. But no genitals involved. No genitals involved in any of this. No genitals, you say? I see a little, a little bush. Oh, right. No genitals. Merkins. What? American? Merkin. American. American. It's American. It's a vagina toupee. A vagina toupee. Does Trump have a merkin? On his hand, yes. Yes, he does, in fact. I think he was confused. In a natural shade of orange. That's what he ordered. A natural orange merkin. Which he is on a natural orange merkin. Notice the subtle difference there. So, you know, these became popular in the 60s. And before this, there really was not much explicit killing of women before the release of a certain slasher flick that came out in the 60s. Can you think of what it might be? We did an episode on it. Oh my God, you're talking about Psycho. Psycho. I saw the knife go in. I saw the knife go I saw a nipple. I, de- <laughs> I saw a nipple. I, I definitely did. Seven times. What? And so that is kind of pointed at as the big harbinger of killing of women on screen and of course there are examples of it beforehand but it is like the big turning point this critically acclaimed movie had it we can do it oh alfred what'd you do uh hitch so hitch is singularly to blame for every exploitative image of women being violently violenced all right steinem cool your jets I love that movie. (laughs) So as Grindhouse films really took off, there were so many different subcategories for them, and they all have just amazing names. Amazing names. It's like if you add E to the end of anything. No. No. It's they get smarter than that, right? Like do they what are they Asian? Yeah, like exploitation. So what are they? So you have things like Sexploitation. Okay. <laughs> which became your softcore porn. And you'd have things like shock exploitation. Oh, is that like just gore and guts? Just, and just, just 
kind of graphic violence. They have like simulated bestiality. Oh my goodness, that would shock me. Incest. You'd have things called mondo films, which another name for those are shockumentaries. We're so clever. And those would actually show these like exotic customs from around the world or these like real death scenes. So they were kind of like the idea of like faces of death where they would mm, show yeah. these like it is real. But, you know, it's kind of National Geographic-like. Okay. So they were for learning. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, of course, you have, like, your black exploitation films. You have your, like, spaghetti westerns, your martial arts films. What's a black exploitation film? You know what a black exploitation film is. Is that, like, is. Foxy Brown? Shaft. Blackula. Oh my god, Black is awesome! <laughs> it was amazing. We watched so it. good! Oh, even one called Hicksploitation? No. Or it's kind of like the B version of Deliverance. Which, things- does Texas Chainsaw fall in that? I don't think it technically does because it had more of a wide release. Okay, okay. And if you really watch it, if you really watch it, we were talking about this earlier, it's an excellent film. No, it's a. it probably is a film. It probably, okay, so for the longest time, Jacob and I have had a dichotomy, an irreversible and irrefutable dichotomy between movies and films. And I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre might be a film. It's walking the line. It's it's close. It shot a man in Reno, though, so. <laughs> yeah, they were cannibals. They were zombies. It was gore. They were slasher flicks. But a lot of these films, they, they blur the lines. Nothing was one or the other. It was always could be really, besides maybe the shockumentaries, really incorporate more than one category. I think the shockumentaries probably incorporated more than one category. I'm pretty sure they were like sex and also cultural differences and weird shit. Which is oh my god. Oh my god are we a shockumentary? We're like a snuff film. (laughs) A fake one. But as these became so popular just like pornography you have again people coming and worrying about the moral fiber of a marker. Right, we have to protect our good taste. Our good Merkin values. And so one person wrote, One's taste is so interwoven with all other aspects of social and cultural experience. Aesthetic distaste brings with it the full force of moral excommunication <laughs> and social rejection. So what did Marshall S. Plural Fletcher have to say after that for himself. Well, I mean, there's just that idea. It's just like with porn. It's like, you are worried about this existing and bringing about just the moral decay of society and harming our children. It's always the children. Which, to be fair, the internet scares the shit out of me as a parent. Well, I mean, there's plenty of crap on the internet, of course. But, I mean, we have, like, that idea, that resistance to low culture. You know, we've talked about low culture in other episodes before. You mean folk culture? Well, that's another way you could describe it. You know, it's that not middle class. It's that not Hollywood elite talking about it. This has become so pervasive. And it's so funny that it's so separated from what the majority of people would take in and recognize as relevant. We see the resistance is like distancing ourselves from the grotesque body. And that's actually something I read about when we were reading about body lore for a few episodes ago. Where that grotesque body, that idea of something that's unnatural and not the norm, that can include cadavers and autopsies. And it can also include people that kind of 
change themselves, that can, you know, scarification and tattooing and piercing. These people are bringing themselves closer to the grotesque, closer to that idea of the abnormal. That's the fear, is that we're we're moving away from that. We're moving away from good, upstanding citizens. I've never understood the conflation between conformity and goodness. That's because you've never been either. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, a critic at the time, Frank Rich, wrote, If snuff is a disturbing phenomenon, it's not because of the expectations and fantasies of the large audience that's flocking to it. And he was talking about the movie Snuff. The audience wants to believe that Snuff will offer an actual murder as entertainment. The people seeking out Snuff are mainstream young adults. The same people who made The Exorcist one of the top grossing films of all time. You know, this ignores that idea. This ignores the idea that viewers can be self-aware. That they can be genre literate. They can understand what an exploitation film is and that they're capable of watching it with detachment and that's kind of a prized idea among art critics and among film critics that one can view something that is seen as the grotesque but be able to be detached from it and still learn from it and still understand the ideas that are being brought across so the ability to see something and not internalize it as maturity, right. essentially. Yeah, we have abandoned that. But now, you know, the concern is that these shockumentaries, these exploitation kind of ideas are now on the internet. And you said the internet is a scary place. I mean, we're on the internet. You should be afraid. And so as the internet was becoming the internet after al gore invented it yeah right that's just a story spoiler alert we're not doing a whole episode on that we will not be (laughs) so as the internet came to be starting to what the terrible place it is now an mpeg file started circulating around what's an mpeg it's a video file so and kind of starts circulating around 2000 online. Mm. And it was titled Lots and Lots of Things. One being Snuff Films Do Not Exist. Cute. And it was a six second video. And it could be found on Napster, <laughs> LimeWire. I had all those things downloaded to my desktop. <laughs> so old. We didn't. FBI, we did not. Oh, that's what the NSA is going to get us for, finally? Yes. That's it? Yes, it's like like tax evasion and Capone. (laughs) That's what they're going to bring us down for. I just hope we get a nice sell like him. But say this video is six seconds long. It's a woman sitting in a wheelchair and crying. And then she screams out the phrase, snuff films do not exist. And then a person off camera pulls a handgun and fires it at her head. And this is shown in graphic detail. Blood splatter on the wall, head flying back. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb and say we don't get that kind of irony just for being humans. We don't deserve it. That's got to be fake. Well, it was even included in the movie 8mm. Oh, with Nicolas Cage? (laughs) Nick Cage? You say to me? Well, a lot of people thought it was real. 
because it was a short little clip. It was posted on lots of forms. You had CSI analysts examining every frame of it, saying it was real. You had the FBI call to investigate the snuff film that was, was Charlie Sheen on the case. And what did they find out? Well, it was not from 8mm, like some people thought. Oh, some people thought it was just like... From the movie. But they just included it for good measure. Right. So 8mm is about a detective that is faced with investigating the validity of an alleged snuff film. And it includes Oscar winner (laughs) Nicolas Cage. In all of his method-acted glory. But where the actual little clip comes from is a 1999 film called Snuff Perversions 2. Two! Yes. Two! You have to see the first one to get it. More Bizarre Cases of Death. And it was also known as Shock 2000. (laughs) Because everything in 1999 was was called called Something 2000. It was produced by Wave Productions. It was kind of this B-film house. So the actual movie, other than the little clip that everyone thought was real. Charlie Sheen was on the case. Depicts a detective gathering real snuff films. And this is a an attractive blonde female detective, yes. I assume. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Cool. The one shot cool. the one shot in the snuff film. Oh. Oh. Well that didn't turn out well for her. That's Oracle gone wrong for anyone who's keeping track. And so before the movie it, there's a title card. And it <laughs> I says, love the title cards yes. before fake snuff films. Me too. <laughs> what you were about to see is true and contains actual depictions of torture, murder. And suicide. You may think you have seen such things already in news footage of war and crime. But what I'm talking about has never been seen before. What you are about to see is snuff. Oh, that's beautiful. And at the end of the movie, there's a title card that says, No one was actually harmed. We were just joking. Sorry. <laughs> I'm serious. That's beautiful, Lil. I'm drunk and it's beautiful. <laughs> says Eddie Murphy. And so now, as they are, you know, releasing this, I'm sure you can get it on Amazon. Now they really credit that it was investigated. And in the production notes, the production description, it says, This movie is so realistic. The introduction piece produced by Todd Russell was actually investigated by the FBI and CSI, who thought it depicted an actual snuff murder of a real victim. So you see that, like, This idea of the snuff film has now moved online. And the idea of the internet, like you said. Scares the shit out of me. Yeah, the internet is a terrible place besides this happy little place we are at now. Welcome to your happy place. We're talking about murder. Um, (laughs) That is no reflection on your character, by the way. You couldn't help what episode we did this week. You're still a beautiful person. You never know what the hell we're going to talk about. You believe in unicorns, and you want to hear us talk about it one day, and we will. We're going to take care of you. It's okay. We did, last episode. Yeah, that's true. African unicorn. Oh, copy. Oh, yes, we did. We did. We talked about the unicorn for just for you. Just for you, My Little Pony and Unicorns. That was That's what we're about. But, right, the idea of this kind of, like, hidden circle of people that are producing snuff films, that idea becomes more possible with the internet. You could just post it online. You could post it on the dark web. Is the dark web an urban legend? No, it's a real thing. Oh. Okay. It's a real thing. It really is a thing. Every bad thing can happen now. But, I mean, you have things like the Silk Road, the guy that created it is going to be in 
prison for the rest of his life. You can have these online communities distributing illicit, illegal things very easily using bitcoins to transfer them. So the idea of the internet spreading these things in these false snuff films like this one, I mean, Google snuff film, go to YouTube and Google snuff film. You will get 20 fake snuff films and they're all fake. Well, no, that's not true. There are some that are documentation of actual murders. Oh, you're right. Like you can Google snuff film and have something like the Columbine CCTV footage. Or the Leonard Lake and Charles Ng videos. Right. And we have unfortunately watched all of them. But none of them are snuff films. Because a snuff film is something that is produced solely for entertainment purposes. Um, I'm raising my hand and no one can see me. And I'm not going to speak until I'm called on. Because I feel like I'm spoiling your party. This is going to be a long pause. <laughs> I'm very insistently raising my hand. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so this one time in Canada. Oh, shit. (laughs) This guy's going to get like two years. So like everything on the internet, it starts with cats. Oh, look, cute cat gifts. Kittens. Love cats. So in 2010, the December of it, this anonymous poster uploads videos of two small, furry, adorable cute, absolutely perfect, work-avoiding kittens being placed in a Ziploc bag No. as he inserts the hose of a vacuum cleaner No. and sucks the air out of the bag, killing the kittens. So this is another fake cat snuff film. No, it's a real cat snuff film. No. 110%. And all faith in humanity is gone. Yes, and then he continues the same poster, the same anonymous poster, this kitten-killing motherfucker continues to post videos that are more exotic and more depraved as time goes on. He posts videos of himself feeding a live kitten to a Burmese python. He posts videos of a kitten in a porta pet being lit on fire. He posts videos of a cat duct taped to a broomstick being drowned in a bathtub. Wow. I'm sure the cat obsessed internet did not take this well. Well, according to one person who worked this case as a civilian, there is an unwritten rule on the internet. It's called Rule Zero. It is that you don't mess with cats. You do not want to piss the internet off. Not unless you want attention. So this guy made one boy, two kittens, and posted it. What better way to get famous than to fuck with cats? Oh, fighting words. So this character, this kitten killer, was posting videos of himself killing cats on the internet, engaging in internet culture, picking up on all the little tropes, keywords, association, cultural cues, and codes that this folk group had established, and exploiting it. This excited some animal activists, and they began their armchair, web sleuth, detective investigation of said kitten killer. Through the course of their investigation, they found one man in Canada 
and they had their eye on him. And they knew from all of his other internet follies that he had a desire. A desire to become a porn star. Of course. He had been a male escort. He had been an amateur porn star. He had auditioned for reality shows. And they had their eye on him. This guy needed the cameras on him. So, if a man wants to be a porn star and he's in hiding, how do you draw him out? I don't know. Well, dearie, 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 you dangle Ron Jeremy before him. Yes. How else do you draw cat murderers out but dangle Ron Jeremy (laughs) in front of the pussy killers? That's it. Now, they had a plan. They were going to draw the kitten killer into the light. Law enforcement weren't taking them seriously. Cat murder doesn't count, the law enforcement say. They don't know the internet. They don't know rule zero. Who? Who drew them out? Well, a pair of twins, of course. (laughs) Who else could dangle Ron Jeremy, silly, silly boy? The Barbie twins, no less, who were famous for their 1999 spread in Playboy magazine. I think I saw that in 2000. Good job, you. So, knowing what this individual wanted, they called Ron Jeremy. Adult film legend, Google him. Don't Google him. <laughs> oh my God. When I first saw Ron Jeremy when I was like in high school, I thought he looked like Mario. <laughs> <laughs> so the twins, the Barbie twins, contacted Ron Jeremy and said, we need you on set. We have a kitten killer to catch. This individual would have shown up had this plan been enacted in a Los Angeles studio to perform in a film once on set members of a biker gang animal rights activist organization known as rescue inc would grab him and make a citizen's arrest and hand him over to authorities at first jeremy was on board he had one rule no gay stuff yeah it was actually it yeah i figured no homo no homo no homo And the Barbie twins assured him that there was not even going to be any pornography, let alone gay stuff. Oh, well, never mind. I'm out. He was like, I only do straight porn. And they were like, there's not going to be any porn. Just kitten killer catching. Jeremy went on to say, we were playing along with him wanting to be a porn star. It would be on set. We were clowning around. Maybe we'd do a policeman movie where a cop comes in. Put your hands behind your back. Oh my, Officer Hardon. But it would be a real cop! The real deal. When they explained to Jeremy that there would be risk involved, the perpetrator might show up early, and Jeremy might be alone with the kitten killer. The pussy slayer. You want to say it, don't you? <laughs> which, which used to be Ron Jeremy's name. The more Jeremy thought about the plan the more the deception became too real. And then the plan fell apart. He kind of chickened out, said Sia, one of the Barbie twins. I'm so sad that they did not catch the kitten killer on a porn set with Ron and Jeremy. Because that would have brought things full circle, right? (laughs) The perpetrator involved with the killing of the kittens went to jolly old England in December of 2011. Yeah, and throughout this, I mean, he's escalating. These videos are becoming more and more terrible. And this person is just eating it up. Just loving the attention. Oh, and they are trying to get caught. Like, he would post pictures on some social network feeds that showed him with the kittens that would later be killed without his face pixelated. And then posted on more public forums with his face pixelated. And while in England... He posts a photo of himself in front of Buckingham Palace. And you know what? The sleuths are on the case. 
They're taking this shit seriously, and they contact British officials and investigators to let them know that there is a cat killer. killer in their midst. And the British officials say, thanks, mate. Jolly good. All right, go be American now. They do start to ask questions, though. And while he's there, an anonymous source that may or may not be linked to said kitten killer emails the son, and he says to them, I'm going to produce another video, and it's going to have humans involved, not just pussies, because this man has a way with words. Now, some murmurs, some rumors, some internet buzz begin circulating in late March of 2012. And it's touting this video. Have you seen it? Can you even believe? Oh my, what could it be? More dead cats. I'm so excited. No, it's called One Lunatic, One Ice Pick. And according to a poster on psych forums, known as Anonymous Girl 4, Firstly, don't worry, I'm not posting the graphic details or links to this video. I'm just curious. What would possess somebody to do this type of crime? There's video of a guy around age 20 from San Francisco. He apparently made real snuff films that depict cannibalism and necrophilia along with the murder. I'm doing research and I would very much appreciate any and all advice and help you could give me. Is he a psychopath, antisocial, or what? So then anonymous girl 04, clearly a girl. Thank you for responding. Firstly, no, I don't know who he is. I don't believe he has ever been arrested or caught. I'm assuming my theory is that he makes these videos for paying clients around the world who pay big money to watch. I don't know how many of these videos he's made, but I was on tour the deep web. He was paid six figure sum according to the comments. But then I went back to try and copy the video, and I couldn't find my way. It's very confusing. In the deep web. If somebody murders, dismembers, cannibalism, necrophilia, and puts it on film, which, first of all, bad, bad grammar, I would assume that they were demented in some way, question mark. I will find more details and post here. So when were these posted? May 16th of 2012. Remember it. Hold it in your heart. Got it. So, the video... One lunatic, one ice pick. Okay, so let me take you back. This is in reference to the aforementioned two girls, one cup. Don't Google it. Don't, don't, don't. Stop it. Stop it. You're driving for God's sakes. Put it down. Which was a disgusting video that I still haven't seen. Refuse to see. I refuse I've seen, to see I've it. watched almost every video except this one that we've talked about on this episode. Yeah. I've not seen that. No. Won't watch it. Don't need to. Don't need to know that. But that was the thing of the moment in 2012 was Two Girls, One Cup. And this was being clever in a not clever way at all. One lunatic, one ice pick. It was posted. A video. A ten and a half minute video. When? May 26th. That's after the comments. Right. So I think the comments that I've just read to you may have been associated with some nefarious activities. A little bit of hype, a little hyping. A little hyping. It was posted on the Canadian website, bestgore.com. Ooh, fun. Which actually, inadvertently, in researching snuff films, I have used a ton of their links. One of the Leonard Lake and Charles Ng documentaries I watched earlier was posted on bestgore.com. So thanks, guys. 
So you post this video on bestscore.com. So what is on bestscore.com? <laughs> like in Charles Ng. So real life gore. Yes. Shockumentary. Shockumentary. This is the modern shockumentary. They call it the largest reality network in modern media. So also exploitation. Yes, that too. This video, one lunatic, one ice pick, uploaded on bestscore.com, a Canadian website. Okay, so I'm on bestscore.com. I'm a Canadian. A. I'm eating some poutine. Good for you, buddy. And I'm checking out bestscore.com. And apologizing. And I'm sorry, I'm going to look at the site. <laughs> and what the hell do I see when I click Ugh. one lunatic, one ice pick? So... In the glorious film that is One Lunatic, One Ice Pick, which is grainy and terrible, you see a person who's not struggling, but is moving. Obviously male. His face is covered. And you see another man in the video who's dressed in black and wearing a hoodie. Victim's arms and legs are bound to the corners of the bed originally, but then there's like a, a momentary cutaway, time for the director to think. And the victim is unbound when we come back. He has coverings still over his eyes and mouth. You then see the person in all black straddle the bare chest of the other person who is previously bound with their face covered. Quickly dismounts and we see the ice pick, the titular ice pick. He starts stabbing this person. First in the abdomen, then in the chest, then in the face, and he stabs him over 100 times. Over 100 times? Yes, I did the math. This is on video. Yes. Taking everyone's word for it, I will watch the video. I will not watch this video. Then we see that the victim's neck has been sliced, and the coverings on his face have been removed. Then the camera is picked up and moved in for close-ups to show off the work. And... Then we see that the victim's head has been cut off and the perpetrator takes the head and waves it around by the hair, a la Caravaggio, David and Goliath. And then he starts stabbing him again. Then he begins dismembering him. And then he uses an arm to fondle himself. Throughout the course of the video, the victim is fully dismembered, is decapitated. There's a vile act of necrophilia committed on the victim. It's torso. And then some flesh is removed and fed to a dog. No, 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 no. Oh, it gets worse. That dog, that adorable little black and white dog featured in said video. Yes. Shows up dead in a dumpster a couple of days later. Yeah, it got worse. All right. Um, A dismembered person and a dog that was fed the said dismembered person that was then dispatched. Yes. And then it cuts to stills of the pieces of the dead body. All right, this has got to be some friggin' B film filmed in New Jersey, like Shock 2000. There's no way that this is actually real. It's so much worse than a B movie. This is money. This is a vanity film. Well, you might have been in that camp. You might have been one of the non believers. But you know who was in the camp of the believer? Who's that? Roger Renville. Good old American hero. Roger Renville was a Montana lawyer who is perusing the offerings of bestscore.com. Because maybe he has a podcast where he has to talk about this shit. I don't know. Whatever the reason. He came across this video, One Lunatic, One Ice Pick. And he was pretty sure that it was real. He did a little detective work, too, because he was a crafty, crafty man. 
And he noticed that the song that had been played, True Faith, so metal. So metal. So metal. Was one of the identifiable features of this film. And so he looked up other homemade videos that used this soundtrack. And he stumbled across a couple of things that made him think maybe he saw a connection. And then he went looking around a little more. Another identifiable feature in this video that he noticed was a ring. And after a little bit of web searching... Web sleuthing. He discovered that there was someone wearing this ring who's identified on Photo Bucket. So after he had done his sleuthing, he did what any good servant of justice under Captain Murka's rule would do. He alerts the authorities. Oh, good. In the United States and Canada. Oh, Canadians. Ah, Canadians. Well, all of them, United States and Canada, take a look at the video and they're like, yeah, we've seen this before. It's fake. Yeah, snuff films aren't they've snuff been talking films about it for forty five years. Not real. You crazy backwards ass Montana lawyer. Jesus. Get some culture. Ah, we know better. Not only did he report to authorities that he had found a real snuff film, he reported the name of the individual that he suspected of making it. Okay, so he actually figured out who might have made this. Yes, thanks to the animal activist who had been pissed off about kittens and laid the groundwork. And the name of the individual they suspected was Luca Magnata. Ooh, he sounds like a villain. Like well, a he made up villain. his own name, much oh, like right. BTK. Because Eric Newman and Dennis Rader just don't have the same rings to them. So the police were like, oh, silly, sweet, sheltered Montana boy. You don't know what special effects look like. And then... And then a janitor found a suitcase with a human torso in it outside Magnata's apartment building. Fantastic. And then they said, okay, maybe we need to call that guy from Montana back. We'll say sorry. Found a torso, sorry. (laughs) In addition to the torso thoughtfully packaged in the lovely luggage sitting outside Magnata's apartment, they were mailed a hand and a foot. The foot went to the Conservative Party of Canada's headquarters, and the hand was on its way to the Liberal Party's headquarters, but it was intercepted by a studious, aggressive postmaster. Now, Luca Magnata did not just come to this idea by his own genuine creative abilities. He was inspired by others. He was inspired, like, by these fake snuff films? No, by Three Guys, One Hammer. What? Are the maniacs. Some Ukrainian. Dupendrufentresk. We we know we'll mispronounce it. Dupendrufentresk. That's Swedish chef. Swedish chef is maniacs. In these videos, or this particular video that services online, there was a group of about three men... And they were using a cell phone to shoot footage. A man went by. They began hammering him in the face until he's unrecognizable. It is horrific. I've also not seen that video. Won't give it my time. But kind of as we said, I mean, Luca Magnana's background is just, God, it's disturbing. He just was auditioning for different reality shows. He was a porn star. He was a escort he was just doing anything he could to seek attention. And, oh man, there's a great Sword and Scale episode about this guy. I highly recommend it. Absolutely. I think it's 33 and 34, beginning of season two. It's excellent. Love that podcast. Magnata would not only go on any audition that he could 
possibly find to get himself on television. He also tried to create an online persona for himself. You mean like a hundred online personas? Yes, but the only thing those online personas had to talk about was how amazing Luca Magnata was. Have you seen this video? Have you seen this guy? I heard he was River Phoenix's cousin. I heard he dated Carla Hamaka. The Barbie Ken killer? Oh, yes. And you know what they made together? The real-life Barbie and Ken, not this imposter. What? Snuff films. Of course. That's a story for another time. He was just a really desperate, kind of insane, unlikable, narcissistic. There we go. That's the key word for Luca Magnata. That is what you need to know for the purposes of this story. He was a narcissistic, self-loathing monster. And so he posted an eye on Craigslist, hoping to find someone to help him make a video. You won't be paid. It's just for my personal use, he says. On May 26th of that year, he meets a very attractive man, an unusually muscular Asian man. Named Charles Ng. No, he doesn't. No, this is actually a very attractive, seemingly sweet, nice human named Jun Lin from China, who'd come to Canada to study computer engineering. Lin answers his ad on Craigslist and meets him. And there's actually surveillance footage from the apartment building where Magnata was living at the time of the two entering the apartment. And presumably what happens is they go up to Magnata's apartment and Lynn is either incapacitated or drugged in some fashion. And then this video is filmed. Right, because he's seen later leaving the apartment wearing the shirt that Lynn was wearing. Yeah, it's an Ed Hardy shirt. I forgive him. It was 2012. We didn't know any better. He was Canadian. Newly Canadian at that. So as we've said, there was a torso in a suitcase. Um, so they finally start taking this seriously. Yes. And on May 30th, he was added to the Interpol Most Wanted list. While the Canadian government and the United States government were going, nah, snuff films don't exist. Don't be silly. Magnata had gotten on a plane and flown out of the country. And meantime, he'd gone to Berlin. Now lucky for us... There was a bit of a news junkie working in an internet cafe in the working class district of Berlin. And on June 4th, he watched this man walk in. He was wearing makeup and sunglasses and he was like, God, he looks familiar. He kept staring at him. So he finally went and looked at the monitors where he could see what the people were looking up on their computers. And he looked and he saw that this guy with sunglasses and the makeup who'd come in and said, bonjour, internet, like an asshole, was Googling this Toronto killer. And it was just weird and then he started thinking about it and he used his context clues and unpacked his adjectives and he said oh my god it's him he's googling himself like a narcissistic maniac and then he grabbed some german cadets and brought them in and said this man and they said okay and they arrested him it was indeed the one the only luca magnata and he was caught by german authorities canadian officials were alerted and he was extradited back to canada to face justice so what was he charged with there were five counts he was charged with first degree murder distributing obscene content mailing obscene content by which i think they mean a foot committing an indignity to a body and harassing the prime minister oh that's no go in canada no unless you say you're sorry he did say he was sorry and you know what nobody cared someone else did say they were sorry eventually and they did get a lighter sentence and that's mark merrick who's that the owner and operator of bestgore.com oh where this video was posted yes yes 
In an original interview with Merrick shortly after the fact, he stated that people should be grateful. Myself and other Best Score members are people who don't live with rose-tinted sunglasses permanently mounted on our faces. We see the real nature of men on a daily basis. So this video is just another example of what we know people are capable of. He dismissed critics of the site, saying that they feel threatened when their rose-colored world is exposed for not being as cozy and warm a place as they force themselves to believe it is. He said the website contributing to making safer neighborhoods. Oh, good. He also said it's not a crime to publish this. Boy, was he wrong. Yeah, he was actually indicted and charged with corrupting morals he was charged with corrupting morals which is still a charge on the books in canada still in the books here i know but he was like it also says it's illegal to distribute birth control information so we have an example of what could be considered a snuff film and this was a murder of somebody that was purely done for entertainment purposes he solicited someone to participate in a video but it's, I still don't know if it fits the definition because this is a terrible case, a terrible case. And I, I think I would consider it a snuff film. I would. But the idea, the real idea of the snuff film is that you have this Hollywood elite, this inner circle, this secret little gathering of people that is distributing these films. Right, not just one narcissist with an IP address. Right, is this just a one-guy thing? Is this a one-off or maybe a two-off? Because we do have the maniacs. And also, one of the components of the definition is like these things are being bought and sold and traded like behind our backs and we don't know anything about it. It's like this cabal, this conspiracy. And I think that's an important part of it. Like, this is just some guy posting some fucked up shit he did on the internet. Right, and so you have to wonder... Is this an example of a snuff film? Because snuff films are used. I mean, kind of as I said, it's not a story. It's not this one narrative that's told. It's this idea. This idea of a snuff film that can be used to symbolize like this unimpeded flow of sex and violence that's in media. The most obscene thing that could possibly exist. Right. It's the extreme. You know, you have to wonder, and I have to think, just from my position you know, in dealing with children and, you know, I always talk about violence in media and it's without a doubt that there are some terrible things on the internet that you do not want kids to see. Like two girls, one cup. Yes. Or one lunatic, one ice pick. Uh, why did you just say that? I'll never be right again. But I think of that idea of violence, the idea of violence, you know, you look at these anti-porn crusaders and you look at the people that are against violence and even cartoons if you look back or comic books mm. as i've talked about in the glasgow vampires episode and of course you do not want kids seeing these extremely grotesque things no i would abs i would die i think i would physically expire if i knew that my children had seen one lunatic one ice pick i would i would die and you look at these studies the studies overwhelmingly talk about that idea of violence in media leading to aggression leading to desensitization towards violence and a lack of sympathy for the victim you know especially in children but it's important to point out as in all scientific studies that these are risk factors it's not a causation while there are studies showing that there's a link between aggression as a child to having aggression as an adult you can't help 
but think that some of this has to be related to self-selection, meaning that the people that are more prone to this are going to be the ones that are seeking violence and media out. So a Makari University Children and Families Research Center found that children who watch violent movies are more likely to view the world as an unsympathetic, malicious, and scary place. And that can stimulate aggression. Um, so what? Is that just like the ultimate spoiler alert? Yeah, I mean, they're right. <laughs> the world is a scary, unsympathetic, malicious place. We say after a year of having done this podcast. <laughs> but there are a lot of thoughts on the views of this not gratuitous violence. I remembered when I was a kid, there was this couple that came to our school and did a thing about how even though cartoons get to come back after they die, like fall off a cliff, you can fall off a cliff and really die. And this is, again, like giving no credit to the viewer. No. No credit that people can actually separate. Suspend disbelief for a second and then come back. Separating reality from fiction. And, you know, you also think of, like, horror movies, and people talk about these terrible things that are in horror movies. And, again, it completely discredits the viewer, saying that we have no brain, that we have no, we cannot think, and we cannot separate fiction from reality. Dude, if you and I aren't murderers by now, that's a silly idea. Because as much murder and mayhem and terrible things as we've read about in the last... 50-something episodes of the show, we would be completely depraved if we couldn't filter. And our listeners would be wreaking havoc and mayhem like fucking berserker mode Vikings on the world. Right, we have thousands of listeners just fucking going people. We know you're smarter than that. We believe in you. We hope so. And I mean, I think of horror movies, and I, as a kid, loved horror movies. I I started with the... My dad showed me Psycho probably way too early. And... Then, I mean, went on to the Universal Monster movies and all the classics and watched Clockwork Orange and all these things. And I was able to separate reality from fiction. Wes Craven, the famous horror auteur, had a That's great... Nightmare on Elm Street. That's Hills Have Eyes' first one. Yes, Real one. Original. Yeah. You know, he said that horror movies are like boot camp for the psyche. In real life, human beings are packaged in the flimsiest of packages, threatened by real and sometimes horrifying dangers, events like Columbine. But the narrative form puts these fears into a manageable series of events. It gives us a way of thinking rationally about our fears. Another psychologist, Melanie Moore, states, Children need violent entertainment in order to explore the inescapable feelings that they've been taught to deny and to reintegrate those feelings into a more whole, more complex, more resilient selfhood. This is the idea that these kind of things, these ideas of violence, these kind of malicious acts that are, of course, in an age-appropriate way. You know, we're not saying that kids should see these terrible, extremely gory films. These are a way for people to understand those feelings of, of rage that they might have, of, of feelings of anger, and to understand a way to utilize them, to not fear them, to appropriately handle them. I think you just said that Horror movies might be our modern-day cautionary folktales. Well, they kind of are, and they can be a catharsis, and they and can, a cathexis. Yeah, and they can be a way that we understand things without actually having to 
experience endure them, them right. not even experience them and it's a way i mean like we've become so sanitized the average kid growing up in the suburbs doesn't see a cow butchered right there's no actual blood on our hands like there used to be and you know one film reviewer talks about this this feminist furor that was around snuff films and anti-pornography in the 70s and 80s and then it's kind of it's faded away but it's faded away as real video footage a horrendous death is finding its way onto television. The idea of the snuff film has disappeared just as a thing itself has passed into the mainstream culture. And so starting with Vietnam, starting with this disenchantment with war, and leading to the current films that, while not fitting the appropriate definition, could almost be considered snuff films that are on the news right now, of our fellow men, of our neighbors being killed for whatever reason that is. That idea of violence towards our fellow man does not have to be in a snuff film. It's something that has come in to the modern culture. It's something that comes into our home every day on our phones or on the internet or on TV and we see these shootings and we see these killings. Beheadings. And do we need snuff films to even have this idea? This idea that man could be this terrible. The ultimate obscenity. The ultimate taboo. It's been transgressed. It's been broken. But I have to think the idea of snuff films while something like Luca Magnata exists. This is a one-off. This is not some secret dark ring of people that are distributing these films and that are purposely making them for profit and are going around the world selling them. I mean, this has to be just a story. No. What do you mean? No. That's it's not just a story. So in the year 2000, around September, Jason Burke and Philip Willen of The Guardian cited the exposure of a child pornography ring which trafficked snuff films in articles titled The British Link to Snuff Videos and Pedophile Videos Stun Italians, which was released on September 28th. The same sting operation is discussed in Newsweek. And it's known within law enforcement circles as Operation Amante de Bambini, which means the friends of the children. It was an international investigation into the production and supply of pedophilic snuff films in which children are murdered on film. An individual known as Dmitry Kuznetsov was targeted as the leader of this ring. He was distributing films within the country of Italy. At that time, around 3,000 videos were seized in an Italian investigation. Those investigators say that the material that was seized in included footage of children dying during abuse and that they were considering charging all of those involved for complicity in murder. They said they had foreknowledge that some had specifically requested films of killings. Those films were called Necrospedos. It was a category on the site's menu. There was an email published by the Italian press that read as follows. Anonymous. Promise you're not ripping me off. Russian. Relax, I can assure you, this one really dies. Anonymous. Last time I didn't get what I wanted. Russian. What do you want? Anonymous. To see them die. 
At the time, there were 5,000 people under investigation as a result of the sting operation. And the head of the API, which is the equivalent of the Italian BBC, named Gad Lerner, retired from his position after people under him decided that they should air images of child pornography during primetime news in order to convince people that this was really happening. Because at the time, people were still denying that child pornography existed. The man indicted as a result of this sting is the leader, Dmitry Kuznetsov, was released because of a special amnesty for an anniversary of the Great Patriotic War in Russia. He is currently free. Two of his compatriots were also indicted, and one of them is also freed due to amnesty. After learning what the Italian press was saying about him, Dmitry Kuznetsov said that he was going to rename his circle of child pornography distribution lucky video after father fortunata a benevolent italian priest who had headed up the investigation for four years on his own dime he also said that he was going to start distributing his material for free as a sign of indignance towards the italians who'd brought this investigation against him there are some european newspapers online that require a google translate to understand and uh, they claim that if you access the Necrospetas tab of the menu on this website, there were images of girls being hanged, and these girls were nude and 10 years old, and there were adults being executed on film. This is not only documented in The Guardian, one of the most reputable newspapers in the UK, but also in several law enforcement training manuals that cite Operation Amanti di Bambini as an example of the cyber crimes detection and defense unit's best protocols. This investigation is ongoing, obviously, but the fact remains that there are people in the world who are asking for this kind of material to be produced, and there are people who are willing to produce it. So I guess my optimism has failed me. I guess the depravity of man has come out I wish this idea of people purposefully hurting and abusing and killing people and children purely for entertainment and profit I wish this was just a story Society 13 Podcast Network Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen